Hello there and welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're breaking down UFC Vegas 45, the last event of the year. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do for the next few weeks? Anyway, for this breakdown today, we're doing something a little extra special. We're giving away three prizes to three lucky winners. Here's how this works now. In this full breakdown, you're going to see individual fight breakdowns from the prelims all the way up through the main card. We'll give you our favorite picks to win, of course, some prop bets we might like. If you notice snowflakes in the breakdown, then that's what you're looking for. You want to go ahead to the comment section. The first three people who do this will win the $25 gift card from Amazon. Here's how it works. You list the breakdowns or the individual fight breakdowns in this film that have the snowflakes. I don't know how many there are. Maybe three fights, four fights. You'll notice them. Whoever does it first accurately, the first three people who go to the comment section, list those fights in this breakdown that have the snowflakes, and we're sending you a $25 Amazon gift card. Pretty simple, right? Just for the holidays. Maybe for Happy Kwanzaa, maybe for Hanukkah, for Christmas, whatever you're celebrating. Maybe just go buy a six-pack of beer. Whatever you want to do with that Amazon gift card. Well, then again, how can you buy a six-pack of beer with Amazon gift card? Anyway, buy whatever the hell you want on Amazon. With that said, let's jump right into it, guys. Thanks for joining us. first fight on the prelim card for UFC Vegas 45 is going to feature a lightweight bout between two American fighters, Matt Sales from California and Jordan Levitt from Las Vegas. So we got two guys from the west side here going to duke it out. Levitt goes by the Monkey King. He's 8-1 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's minus 110 on the money line, so it's a pick 'em. 26 years old, 5'9 and high with a 71-inch reach. He trains out of Syndicate MMA right there in Vegas. As for Mr. Sales, he goes by a robo, like kind of like RoboCop, but just robo. 8-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails from San Diego, California, 27 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67.5-inch reach. He's out of Alliance MMA. So both these guys are coming out of very good gyms, good training partners, good coaches. Levitt is the favorite here, according to Tapology's public vote here, getting 85% of the votes, only 15% of the votes coming in for sales. I do like Levitt to win the fight, but not a lot of confidence here in this one. Uh, we'll break this down here and try to give you... Um, I guess some tidbits to help you if you're going to wager on it. But I, I will say this is going to be a tough one to call. And uh, let's just break it down. Here we go. So Matt Sales, all right? He's born in California, raised in California, went pro in 2014. So been a pro for about seven years. Before UFC, he fought in Cage Fury, Explode MMA, and World Series of Fighting. Um, some pretty good promotions. He's three. He's got a 3-0 amateur record. So he did have some amateur fights. It was undefeated as an amateur. The biggest wins of his career over Kyle Nelson in 2019 via triangle choke and Christian Aguilera in 2017. Um, in a Cage Fury fight, first round KO. So um, very, very low level kind of names, not big time names, but you know, he's still, you know, very young in his career. He's uh, only 27 years old. I'm sorry, 26 years old. He's only fought 11 total fights. So he doesn't have any big career wins, hasn't fought in anybody uh, very notable. Some positives here on Mr. Sales. He's, uh, he's got the seven years pro experience, as we mentioned. So it's not like his first rodeo. And he's got a pretty high finish rate of his last five wins. Okay. Um, he's finished all of those by some kind of a knockout or submission finish. So he's got a pretty high finish rate when he's winning. Um, now, with that said, he's one and two in the UFC so far. He's one and two in his last three fights. And he was overweight in his last fight by two pounds. Now, not a big deal. That was two years ago, which is also another issue for me, a two-year layoff. Um, but he was overweight in his last fight, and he had to actually... Um, go ahead and, you know, uh, guess give up some of his purse. And that was a fight against Bryce Mitchell, where he lost in round one via a twister. Now, let me tell you, that's a very awkward submission. There's only been two ever in UFC history. So it kind of suggests to you it's not, you know, it's not common, right? It's kind of an odd thing. What happens in that fight against Bryce Mitchell, he was just overwhelmed from the beginning. He gets taken down early in the fight. He gets out-wrestled, out-grappled. And if you just watch that fight in a vacuum, you got to walk away wondering, you know, can Sales wrestle? Um, is he a wrestler? He didn't have a wrestling background, like didn't wrestle in high school, whatnot, but he looked like a fish out of water. So um, 
His ground defense, wrestling, and submission defense are going to be a problem here because he's going against a guy who's a submission artist. You know, that's more or less all Jordan Levitt wants to do is roll and grapple. Um, so here we got a guy in Matt Sales who's shown us in recent history with his fight against Bryce Mitchell that he's not a great grappler. And if we go back one more fight before that, go back, I get to his fight against Kyle Nelson. He does win the fight. He wins via triangle choke in round three. But in round two, he's in trouble. And that's after he was kicking Nelson's ass in round one. Like, he had Nelson on the verge of a TKO. He was beating him up. Round two comes out. Nelson's smart. He takes uh, Sales down to the ground. Sales gives up his back. All right? So if he does something like that here against Jordan Levitt, give up his back, which he did that against Mitchell. He did it against Nelson, his last two fights in 2019. If he gives up his back here against Jordan Levitt, it's going to be over. Okay? So three rounds of fighting. If he can't finish Levitt, he starts to grapple with Levitt. He gets in the ground with Levitt. That becomes the problem area for me because I do think Sales is a superior boxer. No question about that. And he's got finishing ability. Um, and striking is clearly not Levitt's game. But Levitt finds a way to get the fight to the ground. You know, it's just sort of how he is. Matter of fact, look at the numbers here on these two fighters here. I should have gone, gone over that earlier. Striking numbers here. Matt Sales is landing 5.44 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 3.13. So nice ratio, good solid output. Levitt, as you can see here, much less. 1.33 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 1.12. Why is it so low? That's not his game. That's not his style. Grappler, wrestler, take it to the ground, roll, keep it ugly, look for a submission, okay? Takedown offense for Levy. He's landing just over three takedowns per 15 minutes, which is a three-round fight. This is a three-round fight. For Sales, he's averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. But his takedown defense is pretty good. Matt Sales is defending 81% of takedowns against him, whereas Jordan Le Levitt is defending 0%. If you watch Jordan Levitt fight, he doesn't mind at all being taken down. He will welcome it. He'll pull guard. Sometimes he goes to take a guy down and he ends up getting on the bottom. He does not care at all for him. He wants to be on the ground. He doesn't mind working from his back. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. Um, that's his game plan. Okay, so this will be interesting to see how Sales does here. If Sales does take him down, which he probably won't do, right? He should stay on top and be careful. But if he ends up on the ground with him in any way, shape, or form, he needs to get disengaged, right? Get out of there. Get back on his feet. Now, according to Mr. Levitt here, what do we have the notes on Levitt? Levitt is from Las Vegas. We mentioned he did wrestle in high school. Interesting little tidbit on him. He quit his freshman year of high school. Didn't like it. I guess it wasn't for him. Then he watched Ultimate Fighter on TV. was like, oh, I like this sport. I'm going to go back to wrestling. Wrestled for three more years in high school. Uh, that's his little backstory there for high school. He celebrates his academic side. That's a nice way of saying that he's a bit of a nerd. Okay, He, he claims to read over 100 books a year. Um, he's, he's talked about going back to his recent high school reunion where he's like the cool guy now after kind of being a nerdy kid in high school. Um, kind of an awkward fellow. Can I put it out there? Like awkward. Um, he, he's, and I say this with all due respect. Like awkward is okay. He's got a different style about him. He's got a, just a different swag. So um, yeah, he seems like a happy-go-lucky guy, recently married, um, just, you know, seems to be enjoying life, right? He was undefeated as an amateur. 2020 Dana White Contender Series is how he kind of made his break into the UFC. He's one and one in the UFC so far. He's coming off his first career loss. He's got a high winning percentage, okay? You got to imagine, eight and one overall. I know it's only nine total fights, but still good record. High finish rate. He's got five finishes in his last six wins, okay? So pretty high finish rate, obviously by submission, okay? Um, active fighter, actually. Four times he fought in 2020. This will be his second fight 2021, so six total fights in the last two years. That's very active. Now, what are, the, what are the problem areas with Jordan Levitt's game? Well, there's really only one problem. His stand-up offense is non-existent. His stand-up defense is also non-existent. If a fighter can force him to keep on his feet, he will lose the fight. There's just no question about it. Now, he is awkward, so he will find a way to get the fight to the ground. He will find a way to get back. Get on the, he'll, he'll, he'll backpack his opponent. He'll do whatever it takes to get the fight to the ground. What I see happening here is I can see Matt Sales winning round one. 
That's very common for Jordan Levitt. Matter of fact, look at Jordan Levitt's fight against Lewis, his last LFA fight 2020 before he joins the UFC or before he had Dana White Contender Series experience. In that fight against Lewis, he loses round one. There's no question. Gets taken down like three or four times, works off his back, doesn't land any good strikes. That's common for Levitt. Levitt can easily drop round one in this fight. I'd say a live bet here on Levitt would be good too. You got to understand, Matt Sales is the better overall just striker, fighting, just fighting, kicking, lower leg kicks, punching. But Jordan doesn't let you do that. Like Jordan would do some really th weird things. Like he'll come in with like a, a switch kick in the air, has no intention of landing it just to then get down to his knees and shoot. When he shoots, it's not good technique. It's almost like he'll shoot, stay on his knees, and then welcome you to just, you know, fall on top of him. This is part of his game plan. He can lose even two rounds in this fight. I can see him going into round three, having lost round one and two just because of striking, right? And then Matt Sales makes a mistake. He did this in his last two fights. It's not going to be a surprise when he gives up his back in round three or late round two thinking, okay, I'm fine. I defended myself. I'm stronger than this guy. And Matt Sales may very well be physically stronger than Jordan Levitt. But Jordan Levitt is like a, he's like a boa constrictor. He's going to keep working around, keep working from one submission to another, which I love the way he, he will go for one submission. It's not there. He works into another submission. He'll work into another submission. Um, he's just very good at it. That's the bottom line. So I like Jordan Levitt to win the fight. From a betting perspective, I think that sub prop on Jordan Levitt, which is not even available yet, but when it becomes available, Jordan Levitt by submission is my favorite prop for this fight. <clears throat> on the flip side, I think you got to consider Matt Sales by decision. If the fight never gets to the point where he gets submitted, he's going to have the higher output. He's got the better punching. Um, I could see, for example, Jordan Levitt being on his back. Sales lands a few hard strikes, you know, top ground and pound, and disengages. If if Mitch, I'm sorry, if Matt Sales is is is, is following the right game plan here, and disengages from the ground, lands a few strikes, he could win this fight easily by decision if he just simply sticks to that strategy. The problem is, I've seen him do the opposite: start rolling around with guys that he shouldn't be rolling with. And with Jordan Levitt, he kind of lulls his opponents to sleep. You see, like he's not he's not hard to fight in the feet. He goes for body locks. He's got good cardio. That's another thing about Levitt. So he's going to body lock you round one and round three. He's going to keep working for those takedowns and working to bring the fight to the ground. By round three, Matt Sales is going to probably have some false confidence. I can survive with this guy. He's not going to submit me. I could do it. One mistake against someone who's a submission. Look what just Charles Oliveira just did to our, our guy, Dustin Poirier. These guys who that's all they really hang their hat on, you know, guys like this. I'm trying to think of the other young guy. Ugh, I forgot his name offhand. I shouldn't say Charles Oliveira only hangs his hat on submissions. He's a well-rounded fighter. But a guy like Levitt, who all he's doing is submissions. That's all he's working on. And when I say that's all he's working on, watch him throw a punch. It's, it looks awkward. It's like watching Conor McGregor throw a football. It's just not his, his thing, okay? Anyway, the long and short of it is, I like the syndicate MMA fighter here, Jordan Levitt, to win the fight, to go to 9-1. and one. I think for Matt Sales, the two-year layoff is also going to be a huge factor here. There's some ring rust. And I should also probably say that a guy who's been at the Octagon for two years, maybe he did make some significant improvements, right? Maybe he has gotten better at defending submissions. Maybe he's watched film and, and studied and, and just his fighter IQ maybe has gone up a little bit. And if he does that and comes in here, yeah, he pulls off the win. And for Jordan Levitt, that'd be kind of crushing. He was 8-0, kind of flying high. Last fight, gets put in his place, falls to 8-1. Two losses in a row would be kind of crushing for him. But I think Jordan Levitt gets the win here. He's opening up this card. It's a chance for him to kind of get back in the win column. I like him to win by submission. Next up, we got the first of two heavyweight fights in the card between Dontel Mays and Josh Parisian. Both American fighters. Parisian is 14-4 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, plus 165 on the money line. He hails from Brighton, Michigan, 32 years old, 6-4 in high 79-inch reach. He trains out of Scorpion Fighting System. As for Dontel Mays, he goes by Lord Kong. 
He's 8-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Minus 200 on the money line. He's from Louisville, Kentucky. He trains at Bronx Hill MMA, which is actually out of Indiana. 29 years old, 11 months, so we'll round that up to a cool 30 years old. He's six foot six in height, very tall fighter, but only two inches taller here than Josh Parisian. Usually Mays has a significant height advantage over his opponents and reach advantage. In this case, only two inches for height, 81 inch reach, only two inches on his reach as well. So not a big advantage there for Mays, but still an advantage for height and reach. As for the Tapology public vote, Mays is getting the votes here. At 66% of the votes coming in for Mays and only 34% of, of the votes coming in for Parisian. I do agree. I think Mays wins the fight. Um, I think at minus 200, it's a little, little chalky. Um, We'll break it down here a little more for you. Let's get the striking numbers. So for Mays, he's landing 4.13 strikes per minute, but absorbing 4.46. He's getting takedowns at a rate of 0.23 takedowns per 15 minutes. So just about a quarter of a takedown per three-round fight. I don't expect him to pursue any takedowns in this fight. Defending at a 59% rate for takedown defense is Mays. Pretty good. On the other side here, Parisian is landing 6.53 strikes per minute. Very high output for a heavyweight and absorbing 6.13. So decent ratio. Better ratio than Mays, who's actually absorbing more than he's dishing out. As for takedown offense, again, Parisian's not very busy in that department. He's only averaging just under a takedown, just under a half a takedown per three-round fight. Decent takedown defense at 66%. So we'll see what happens in the takedown department. I don't expect that to be much of the fight. I expect most of the fight to be on the feet. At times, I could see Parisian crowding Mays, making the fight, you know, a dirty boxing fight, pushing him against the cage. And you know, from that standpoint, it shortens the distance, eliminates the reach advantage, right? That would make some sense. Let's talk about Mays first. He's from Kentucky. He began MMA as an exercising, you know, sort of get his aggression out. Um, that's led to this point now where he's an MMA fighter in, in UFC. Pretty impressive, right? He's got multiple Indiana and Kentucky state championships in judo and kickboxing. I had to take a double take. I didn't realize that they had amateur state kickboxing and judo, judo titles available in the United States. Pretty cool. You learn something new every day, right? He's 8-0 as an amateur. He began his pro career in 2016, so been a pro for about five years. His most notable fight, he lost to Cyril Gaon back in 2019 via a third-round TKO. So he's had, at least he's shared the octagon with some, you know, heavy bangers there, some title contenders, right? Or in this case, a title a title holder, right? Biggest win of his career, he's got a knockout over Harry Huntsucker in round one back in 2016. That was five years ago, but Harry Huntsucker is a UFC fighter, and he got the KO over him. Some highlights of his uh, techniques are things that I like a lot about Mays. High finish rate. Three finishes in his last four wins. He shared the octagon with a championship-level opponent like Cyril Gaon. Nice height and reach. I mean, six foot six, 81-inch reach. He still will have a reach advantage here. If he fights a good fight from the outside, he should be able to tap and touch Parisian from the outside. I mean, look at last fight with Roque Martinez versus Parisian. Parisian was all beat up. If Mays can, can touch him, keep some distance, he should be able to apply, you know, pile up damage there on his face. He's got a nice jab. When he's not getting too tired, he throws a nice jab. If he works behind that jab, that could be his path to success. Um, dangerous body and head kicks. I was surprised. You know, six foot six, a big guy. When he starts throwing those kicks, man, he doesn't use them a lot, but they're powerful and they're dangerous. Now, some of the things that I don't like about Mays, some of the negatives on, on his fighting game, he's one and two in the UFC. So the bottom line is he's struggling a little bit here in the UFC. He's got a one-year layoff, so coming off of uh, the bench per se. Against Roque Martinez, his last fight, um, they both fought Roque Martinez in their last fights. He just wasn't able to finish the guy. And Martinez, you know, not for nothing, he's a tough SOB. But in that fight, you just want to see a guy like Dante Mays finish that opponent somehow, get him out of there within three rounds. He couldn't do it. Started slowing down at times. You know, um, you start questioning, like, does he have KO power behind his hands when he can't get a guy like that out of there? Um very tall fighter, and that could pose some problems. From the standpoint of reach, it's nice, but a tall fighter can get tired, can get sloppy. 
if Parisian can just get one takedown this fight in a key moment, like late round three, late round two, win a round, you know, Parisian will look to crowd against defense. He will at least somewhat attempt a takedown. And you can see he's got a little more takedown in his offense than Dontel Mays. That could be a key factor. And with a very tall fighter who's not bending at the knees and in the hips, getting tired, that could be a problem for, 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 for a guy like Mays. All right, so now let's talk a little about Parisian. He's from West Virginia, so these guys are both from like this mither, middle southern south. Uh, he's married with a child, so married. He's, he's a family man. Began his pro career in 2014, so he's got about seven years pro experience. He came up through Dana White's Contender Series in 2020. He earned his contract on that on that series. He's one and one in the UFC, so kind of you know, um, not a horrible start, but not a not a not a great start. Hasn't fought really you know good competition either. Same goes for Mays. The biggest win of his career, you have to go back to 2016. Da Un Jung. Now Da Un Jung is 15 2 and 1 and 4 and 0 in the UFC. So he's quite a nice prospect, but uh, he beat him round one via a key lock. Uh, so interesting little part of his past there. Um, some positives here on Josh Parisian. A good winning percentage, right? Four losses in his 18 fights. 18 to 4 overall record. That's decent, respectable. High finish rate of his 12 total, I'm, I'm sorry, of his 14 wins, 12 of them he's got finishes. So high finish rate. Now I think that finish rate will start to you know, flatten off here as he gets into the UFC or if he stays in the UFC. Um, but, you know, up to now, he's had 12 finishes in 14 fights. The film that we looked at on both these fighters, we just looked at the last fight, Roque Martinez. And I'm going to talk about that fight real briefly. When Dontel Mays fights Martinez, you clearly see height and reach is crazy. It's almost like eight to nine inches in reach advantage. Mays does a good job, stays on the outside. But when Mar Roque Martinez closes the distance, he clocks Mays. Mays does not have good stand-up stand -up, uh, defense for boxing. Martinez was able to hit him a few times. I thought May showed a pretty good chin. That's what I did say. He was good, good, good accountability for his chin. But over the course of three rounds, you're just left uh, underwhelmed. Like, man, Mays should be able to finish a guy like that. Now, when Josh Parisian fought Martinez, a little different of a story. In round one, Martinez beats the hell out of him. Like, he clocks Parisian. He's got him against the cage. He's got him a little stunned. He starts doing some damage. He opens him up in round one. Round two, you can argue that Martinez won that round as well. But what Parisian did to sort of neutralize it was he started doing a, a cage clinch, pushing himself against the cage. He was the bigger, taller, heavier fighter than Martinez. He was sort of laying on him against the cage. Couldn't take him down, but just sort of mush, mushed the fight up enough that he won round two on all three judges' scorecards. All three judges had Martinez winning round one. Now, round three is where one judge gave it to Martinez, two judges gave it to Parisian. It was a split decision win for, for Parisian. I felt that Martinez won that round. Uh, I thought he did. I thought he landed the cleanest shots. I thought when the fight was over... You clearly can see how Parisian is so beat up. In his post-fight interview, the guy who's doing the interview with him is joking about it a little bit. Like, I can see he hit you in the face a little bit. Ha, ha, ha. Whereas Martinez had hardly any damage to his face. So a little bit of a, I don't know. He got a little job there, I thought, Martinez, in that last decision. Now, with that said, what's more concerning is that Roque Martinez is a journeyman. Like, much respect to the guy, but he's a journeyman. He doesn't have any notable wins on his career. Um, what is his overall record? He is... 15-8-2 overall. He's lost three straight fights in a row against Romanoff, Mays, and Parisian. Um, he's durable. He's a tough guy. He's not easy to finish, per se. But there's a guy who pretty much beat Parisian. So if we're just doing MMA math, just comparing that last fight, I do think Dontel Mays wins this. Now, I've heard some cappers already out there, and some people suggest, like, oh, man, this is a dogger pass. Stay away. Can't get a good read. It's low-level, you know, uh, heavyweight. Yes, I agree with all that sentiment. I agree with all that. If you're not sure on this fight, stay away. I do have a good feeling, though, that Mays is, is clearly the favorite to win here. So forget about the chalky money line at minus 195. 
If you're betting this fight and you're saying just dog or pass, whatever, I think you're throwing your money away here. If you're going to bet this fight seriously, consider the fact they both fought the same guy. Okay? That's your last fight. The link's in the description to watch that fight. Just watch the fight for both fighters. You can watch both of them respectively fighting Roque Martinez. Ask yourself when you're done watching those fights, who was the better fighter? And in my, in my opinion, it clearly was Mays. I think Mays at 29 has a whole lot of holes in his game. I think both these guys are maybe middling UFC-level heavyweight fighters. Probably more like LFA, PFL level, maybe even Bellator level. And it's not insult. I'm just saying based upon sort of their size technique, there's some limit, limitations on what they can do in the UFC if they fight better opponents. In this case, they're fighting each other. It's kind of perfect matchmaking for a prelim card heavyweight bout. Whoever wins this fight kind of gets their foot in there, you know, staying a little bit more, you know, solid in the UFC. Whoever loses the fight, it's not great because there's not many other opponents you're going to fight in the UFC that are at this caliber. Anyway, with all that said, at minus 195, I like Mays to win the fight. I can see it being by decision, believe it or not. Um, I mean, the prop bet you want to go into when you want to think right away with the heavyweight fight is under, the under, under. I think the under or the fight that's not going to distance is like minus 175, which kind of tells you right now. The books know. There's also a chance this fight probably goes a distance. And with the way these guys fight, you could see extended period of wasted time. Three minutes, two minutes of just hugging, holding, guys tired, they're heavyweights, cardio will start to come in play. I saw moments in both these guys when they fought Roque Martinez where their cardio was not great. So, with all that said, pre-card or prelim card, heavyweight bout, you want fireworks, don't know if we're going to see it, but I do like Dante Mays to win by points. I think the I think the high volume of Josh Parisian, which you see there on his um his stats are at six point five three strikes per minute. It's a little inflated. <clears throat> it's not not the same fighter I saw against Rogue Martinez. So what I think is going to happen here is I think Dante Mays will have more output. He'll land more strikes. He'll beat him to the punch with boxing. He'll have the better combinations. And if he doesn't finish Parisian, he'll do enough damage on Parisian's face. One of the scorecards. That's my breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we got a women's bout in the bantamweight division between two American fighters, Raquel Pennington, who goes by Rocky, and Macy Chasson. Chasson 7-1 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights, currently a plus 160 on the money line. She hails out of Dallas, Texas, 30 years old, 5'11 in height with 72-inch reach. She's out of Fortis MMA. As for Raquel Pennington, she's 12-8 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, currently minus 200 on the money line. She hails out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, 33 years old, 5'7 in height with 67.5-inch reach. She's out of Triple Thet MMA. According to Tapology's public vote here, Pennington is the favorite, getting 63% of the votes. I do agree. I like Pennington to win the fight. Let's talk here more about some numbers in these two fighters. For striking numbers, Raquel's landing 3.59 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.21. So decent numbers there. Not the greatest ratio. Her output's a little bit more than her her uh, or her strikes she's receiving. So for Macy Chasson, she's landing 4.16 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.17. So just about double her output. So better numbers there for striking for Macy Chasson and a little bit busier of a fighter. For takedown offense, they're both landing just about one takedown per 15 minutes. And that, that lends to the, their fighting style. Most of their fighting is done on the feet. They want to use their striking. They're both confident in their hands, their kicks. Um, they like to fight at range. And even for Raquel Pennington, range for her could be up against the fence, but it still is on the feet. So I see one takedown attempt for maybe both fighters, maybe two. Takedown defense is also very similar, both around 65% takedown defense. So their takedown offense or wrestling approach defense is going to be similar. I don't think it's going to be a big factor in this fight. Actually, let me rephrase that. It could be the factor at the end of a round. So let's say it's a close round. I could see either fighter here. They're both pretty cerebral using a takedown to maybe secure a round. So that's, that's the way it could be a factor. But I don't see it being like a large part of a round 
or someone getting submitted or anything like that. This fight should be on the feet for most of the fight. Okay, for Raquel Pennington, she was born and raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where she still resides out of. She went to high school there, was a multi-sport athlete, was very talented in multiple sports, actually had scholarship offers to go to college, and then she somehow suffered a broken back. Like She broke her back. Like Mike Tyson, spinal, broken back. So she has to recover from that. Unfortunately, does not pursue any college athletics. Gets into mixed martial arts as a form of, obviously, rehabilitation to stay competitive. Ends up being pretty good at it. You know, here we are in the UFC. But she goes to Invicta, ends up in 2013, Ultimate Fighter. Um, she's engaged to Tisha Torres, who's a strawweight. So um, pretty solid overall fighter, good reputation. Now, her most notable opponent in her career, she fought Holly Holm twice, Misha Tate, Jessica Andrade, Jermaine Randomy, Irene Aldana, Betch Carrera, and Roxanne Mataferi. And we'll break down some of those fights here, but she has fought some very high-level competition. So when you see her record of 12 and 8, you got to definitely keep that in mind. And at 33, she's sort of still in her prime here. You know, she's fought some very high-level competition. Um, I could argue that she still has a championship running her because as we break this film down, you'll see she's just fought some very high-level competition. And even in those losses, some quality losses, right? So they've both fought... Uh, Penny Kianzad. So Pennington and Chiasan, they both fought Penny Kianzad. This year, Pennington fought her, won by decision. Chasan fought her three years ago and won by rear naked choke in round two. So if you're doing MMA math, you would suggest that Chasan's a little bit better of a fighter than Raquel Pennington, even though it's never that simple, right? The biggest wins of her career for Raquel Pennington, that is, she beat Misha Tate in 2016 by decision and Jessica Andrade by rear naked choke in 2015. So a bit of a while, but still quality losses on her resume. Some positives here on Raquel Pennington. She's had a very good gym there, Triple Threat MMA, which is in Colorado Springs, which is her hometown. She's coming off back-to-back -back wins against Kianza and Renault. She has quality losses. I mean, these are top-level quality losses. She lost by decision to Holmes 2020. She lost by decision to Random in 2018. Round 5 TKO loss to Nunez. A split decision loss to Holmes 2015. Another split decision loss to Andrade 2014. So very high-quality losses. I mean, a loss is a loss, but still, it shows you she's been in there where some really tough fighters have gone the distance or lost at the end of those fights, right? She's got good offense in the clinch. That's one of her unique um, her tools. In this fight, that should matter because Macy Chasson's taller and longer. If the fight's done entirely at distance or played out entirely at distance, Macy will have the distance advantage. She could strike, kick. Raquel will probably look to then close that gap, get up against the fence. Against the fence in the clinch, Raquel lands knees, elbows. She's busy. Good fighter. That could be a path for her to win a fight or a path at least to win a round. Now, some things about Raquel Pennington that are concerning. A very low finish rate. In her last six wins, she's gone to decision in all last of her last six fights that she's won. So it's, for me, that's telling me she's going to the scorecards. And, and you go to the scorecards too much, you know what happens. Especially in women's bouts. Especially with Macy Chasson, who's a very talented fighter who could land a few notable strikes throughout just one round to win a round. So for, you know, for someone like Raquel Pennington, who I like her, I, I'm a fan of hers, I think she wins this fight, maybe I'm a little biased, but um, it concerns me her fights go to decision a lot, so she depends on the you know, judges' scorecards, which is you know, a, little bit, a little bit scary. Uh, one little bit more about Raquel Pennington, she tends to come up short against you know, top-level fighters, so she did lose against Holm, Zingano, Andrade, Nunez, Randomy. Is Macy Chasson one of those level fighters? I don't think so. I don't think this is going to be like a high-level fight for Raquel Pennington. I think it's going to be a good test for her. But she should be able to beat out the young up-and-coming fighter here. Now, maybe in a year or two, you know, two, three years from now, Macy Chasson gets better, shores up her game, gets better at her defense. Um, we'll talk more about some of the game parts of her game that I don't like, but um, maybe it's a different result. All right, so let's talk here about Chasson. She's from New Orleans, Louisiana. She also is a former multi-sport athlete in high school. 
Unfortunately, she got into a car accident. So here we go, another injury. The car accident forced her to be bedridden for like a month. So this happens right after high school. She ends up finding a local gym in her hometown that teaches Krav Maga, which is basically self-defense, no holds bar, eye pokes, groin strikes, you know, biting, kicking, whatever you got to do. It's, it's fully self-defense, real life self-defense. So she gets into this Krav Maga stuff. A year later, she's an instructor, 19, 20 years old. She's all into it. Eventually, she wants to, you know, raise the stakes, start competing. She sees, you know, MMA on TV. She sees the UFC, whatever else. So she gets into BJJ, starts, you know, studying that. And then that was how she sort of made her path now. Um, fully recovered from that car accident, you know, thankfully. So 2017, Ultimate Fighter. That was sort of her way into the UFC. Some positives about her. She's also coming off back-to-back -back wins. She's never been finished. Her lone loss was against... Um, Lena Landsberg, and that loss, we'll talk a little bit about that because that loss is not aging well. Landsberg is 10 and 5 overall. She was 36, 37 years old at the time of the fight, and Landsberg is 4 and 4 in the UFC, so she's a 500-level UFC fighter. Um, so when you consider the way that fight went and the fact that she lost to her and she kind of got outgrappled at times, that's the kryptonite for Macy Chasson. That's the area of her game she's got to improve on. Now, Raquel Pennington is not a huge wrestler, not a huge grappler. Well, I shouldn't say not a huge wrestler. She grapples on the feet. Okay, so on the feet, she'll grapple against the cage. Macy Chasson, that's the area she's got to improve a little bit. As a longer fighter, it makes sense. That's one of her challenging you know, spots in her game. She's got to improve in that spot. So that's what happened in Landsberg fight. It's a little, a little concerning. It's not a good loss, right? Her finish rate is also slowing down. So for Macy Chasson, she won four of her first five fights, her pro fights, by finish. Finish, nice high finish rate. Now she's got a decision in her last three straight fights. So it shows you now the competition's going up, her finish rate's going down. She took a year off in 2020 for a heart condition. I don't know much about what happened, but she did receive treatment or a procedure to fix that. It's always a little scary. She's young, 30 years old. I'm not sure what the heart condition was, but it was mentioned on one of her fights um, that she had a heart condition. She was out almost all of 2020. She's very hittable to me in my, 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 my breakdown of watching her film. She's very hittable. So for example, in the Mar Marianne, Marianne Renault fight, Renault, a 43-year-old Renault, was was cracking her in round one she was counter punching her she was landing combinations um she got macy's attention and actually all three judges had renault winning round one of that fight a 43 year old renault who just retired should not be winning any round in any fight against macy chasson so that first round you see chasson her head movement's not great and i just thought to myself she's fighting raquel pennington who's a pretty damn good boxer i think she's a better boxer than chasson she throws straight punches down the pipe she throws combinations. She's going to tag her. She's got pretty good punching power. Not enough, I think, to knock her out, but enough to do some damage on her face. I could see Chasson getting picked apart at times because her head movement's not great. Her stand-up defense is not great. And I saw that against Renault. If you look at the Renault fight, the link's in the description, you'll see what I'm talking about in round one where Renault's tagging her. And it's just kind of sloppy in the part of Chasson. Now, does she adjust later on in round two, round three? Does she do her thing to take the fight to the ground and grapple and win the fight? Yes, she does a good job of adjusting. But in round one, it was a little surprising to me that Renault was actually going to land so many good, good punches. Lower level of competition, that's just got to be mentioned here. So for Macy Chasson, she just not has fought the, the type of people that Raquel Pennington has. And so um, in time, we'll see what Chasson's going to be like in two, three years. But for Raquel Pennington right now, she has, she has a significant advantage here in terms of experience. Now, for the film we watched in both these fighters, we watched the Raquel Pennington versus Panny Kiantad fight. We watched the Pennington versus Home fight, the Chasson versus Renault fight, and Chasson versus Shady Young fight. Those links are all in the description to check them out if you want to watch them yourself. This is going to be a tough fight for people to get on the side of Raquel Pennington because of the money line. At minus 180 to minus 200, it's too chalky for most people. It's a women's bout. Chasson's up and coming. Um, 
You know, there's still questions about can Raquel Pennington, you know, match the output, for example. If it's just a numbers game, you know, and the fight's on the on the outside, Shasan probably wins just from output. I can understand that argument. Or I've heard some people some people say, well, it's plus money, it's a women's bout. You know, plus 150, plus 160, plus 175 for Chasson. You know, I got to go for the dog. I think Raquel Pennington wins this fight. I'm pretty solid on that. I think she wins the fight probably by decision. That seems to be the most likely path. She goes to decision often. I think her veteran prowess in, in the octagon, I think her ability to change the fight at times, meaning whether it's to drag the fight to the ground or pull the fight up against the cage, will benefit her. I think at times she will bust up Macy Chasson. I could see her making Chasson have to adjust her game plan because Chasson's going to feel the, the power, the counter-punching power of Raquel Pennington. And Chasson's going to be a little bit out of her wits there. We'll have to adjust. I can see her backing up a little bit. Pennington pushes the pace, okay? So for someone like Chasson who doesn't mind circling good footwork, that's fine. But Pennington will keep pressing the pace until the point Chasson has her back against the cage for extended periods of time. In that period of time, Raquel will land inside punches and knees. Um, she'll be busy. I like Raquel, Raquel Pennington to win the fight. I like her so much that I'll be parlaying her as one of my top ticket parlay pieces. I'll bet her straight up for at least a unit to unit and a half. With all that said, I do like Chasson as a future prospect here. I just think right now is Raquel Pennington's time. I think her 12-8 and 8 record is completely, um, <laughs> it's, it's completely throws people off. This young lady is a hell of a good fighter. She's got some fight left in her. I think she's got a championship run in her. I think Chasson's going to have her day as well. It's just not going to be this weekend. So I like Raquel Pennington in this fight. Next up, we got a featherweight bout between two North American fighters, Charles Air Jordan from Canada and Andre Ewell, who goes by Mr. Highlight. Andre Ewell, 17 and 8 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights, currently plus 170 in the money line. He hails from Riverside, California. 33 years old in 10 months, so he'll be 34 years old soon. He's 5 foot 8 in height, 75 inch reach. He trains out of Apex MMA and Carlson Gracie Riverside. As for Charles Jordan, he's 11 4 and 1 overall, 2 2 and 1 in his last five fights, currently a Quite a favor here at minus 200, so two to one favor in the money line. He hails from Quebec, Canada, 26 years old, five foot nine in height with 69 inch reach. He's out of Academia Pro Star MMA. According to Tapology, looks like Jordan is a big favorite here, getting just about 90% or almost 90% of the votes here. Looking at the numbers here, striking numbers, Jordan's landing 5.07 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 4.72 strikes per minute. Andre Ewell's dishing out 4.35 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.3. So very similar numbers there. Both guys are just dishing out. Slightly more than they're receiving. When you watch them on film, you notice that there's times in their fights where they're sloppy on their feet. Uh, they're not really playing much. They're not playing very tactical defense. They're just dishing, blows, trading. Um, they can get a little sloppy at times. And sometimes it works out to the favor of Charles Jordan. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes it works out for Andre Ewell. Sometimes it doesn't, as we'll talk about here. So a little sloppy on the feet, which is why I think you see those numbers there pretty much equal for their output versus what they're receiving. Now, for takedown offense or wrestling, these guys are more or less typical stand-up fighters, boxers, kickers. As you can see for Jordan, he's averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. For Ewell, averaging 0.27 takedowns per 15 minutes. So pretty much no takedowns at all between either one of these fighters. For Jordan, he's defending takedowns at a 50% rate. For Ewell, 70% rate. So um, I imagine the entire fight will be on the feet. Now, could somebody get knocked down and there'd be some kind of a grappling you know, session on the ground before he gets back to the feet? Yeah, but for Ewell, even when he's been taken down in fights, and same thing with Jordan, they get up pretty quickly. They bring the fight back to the feet. That's where they want to fight. That's where they feel like they have the best weapons to, to win their bout. Okay, let's talk here about Charles Jordan. He was born and raised in Canada, has an older brother who's also a mixed martial arts, 8-2 amateur record. He made his UFC debut in 2019. It was a late last-minute replacement. Unfortunately, he lost that, de de that debut by decision. 
His most notable opponent was Julian Arosa, which was his last fight. Um, his biggest win of his career was against Marcelo Rojo, which is his fight before that in 2001, where he run he won round three TKO. Now, some solids here that I like about Charles Jordan are some pros or positives about his fighting style. He has a solid chin. If you look at the fight against um, Julian Arosa, his last fight, he gets clipped a few times pretty hard, takes it well, is able to survive it. Now, he does end up losing the fight, but my point is he didn't get knocked out. He took those punches pretty well, so he's got a bit of a chin. I, I mean, a, a solid chin. A high finish rate. He's 11-4-1, all 11 wins are by finish. So he's got a high finish rate. Um, and he's kind of like that guy where it's like, go hard or go home. So either he's going to go in there and get somebody finished or he's going to get finished himself. Now, in terms of his hand speed, some of the quickest hands in this division. And Andre Yule's a quick fighter too. So these guys both have fast hands. But Charles Jourdain, he throws combinations to the body, to the head, Excellent, excellent hand speed. I'm not sure if the power is amazing. Sometimes he just catches guys sort of off balance. Obviously, he's got some power. He's got 11 finishes. But the hand speed, he tags the guy two, three times before the person even knows they got hit. So excellent hand speed. You'll notice that here in this fight. And foot speed, too. He will throw some kicks in there in combination. He's a very active fighter, Charles Jordan. This will be his third fight this year. Now, concerns about Jordan. He's 2-3-1 and one in the UFC. So kind of a bit of a rough stretch here. He was a minus 190 favorite against Julian Arosa when he lost that fight round three via, via choke. He was also a minus 475 favorite against Joshua Kuliaba who in that fight, it went to a split decision draw. So he didn't necessarily lose, but minus 475 favorite, he ends up going to some weird draw. And that fight was odd because if you look at the scorecards, it was one judge who was like a 10-8 round that ended up making it a draw. Otherwise, he was probably going to lose that fight. Um, his grappling is non-existent, but that's pretty much the same thing for Andre Ewell. It's more or less, these guys don't do that. They don't grapple. That's just not part of their, their game plan. He's got terrible leg kick defense matter of fact if you go look at the rojo fight two fights ago he got his front lead leg all chewed up now he's able to finish the fight um he beats the hell out of rojo in round three but his front leg was very compromised andre yule does do some kicking does some lower leg kicking not sure he presses the pace enough for that to be a factor but it's a part of charles jordan's game to get better as for andre yule he was a standout athlete in high school, track and field and football. And he actually got a full scholarship offer to University of UCLA or University of California um, right there in Los Angeles. So full scholarship offer, unfortunately, cannot take it because he had some academic issues. He goes to community college. While he's in community college, he starts beginning boxing, mixed martial arts. He went pro in 2015. He fought, his pro, he fought some of his first pro fights out in West Coast, like regional promotions, California. He's got a son now, so he's a father. His biggest win of his career was over Jonathan Martinez back in 2020. Split decision win. Um, some things about his game that I like a lot. He's got UFC experience. Eight UFC total fights, all right? He's four and four in those fights, so 500-level UFC fighter. Very athletic. As we mentioned, obviously, he had some scholarship offers to go to big-time schools. This guy's very quick, very athletic, very elusive. He does fade sometimes in fights, but the first round, round and a half, he's a very athletic fighter who's hard to hit. In and out with his punches, nice combinations. He's a very active fighter, just like Jordan. Third fight this year, he is coming up in weight, so that's a positive and a negative. So we'll see how that how that works for him. The positive is the weight cut should be easier. Maybe he could have a little more energy. Maybe the cardio is improved. So I'm looking at it as a positive. Now, some negatives here on Ewell. Some things that I would like to see improvement on. Low finish rate. His last four wins have all been by decision. He's three and four in his last seven fights, and split decisions. Let's talk about split decisions. He has three. Split decisions in his last four fights. Or so I'm sorry, his last four wins. So of his last four wins, three of those have been split decisions. He's been to split decision four times in his career. So for some reason, the way he's fighting, and especially even recently, these fights are not only going to judge scorecards, but he's not winning convincingly. 
right? So he has two split decision wins in the last four fights and three total split decisions in the last four fights that he's gone to. So it just tells you, however he's fighting, it's not with a lot of confidence that you want to bet on this guy if you're going to the scorecards. Now, some people are going to say, oh, he's plus money this weekend, plus 170. Um, Charles Jordan, yes, he's got some holes in his game too. Um, take the plus money. I don't think that's, that's, that's I don't have confidence in him, put it that way. Not that you should ever have a lot of confidence, I guess, in a dog. But the point is, I don't have a lot of confidence in Andre Yule that he goes out for three rounds, fights a smart fight, goes to decision, wins two clean you know, rounds. I have confidence it goes to split decision, which at that point, I don't want my money involved with that, right? For this breakdown, we looked at the fights of Charles Jordan versus Rosa, 2021. Jordan versus Rojo, 2021. Uh, Andre Yule versus Arce, 2021. And Andre Yule versus Gutierrez in 2021. Those four links for those four fights are in the, are in the description as usual. Take a look for yourself. Um, I think when you break these guys down side by side, there's things that both fighters do well and some things they don't do well. Neither one of them grapple. That's not going to be a factor. Finishing rate, clearly Jordan is a much better finisher. So I give him an advantage there from that, in, that, in that department. Boxing-wise, they're about the same. They're both getting a little reckless. I do think Jordan has, let me see, faster, has better combinations. Not necessarily faster hands than you will, but just faster combinations. He puts more punches together. He could win this fight in scorecards alone. In terms of their cardio, I've seen both guys get a little tired. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make their, I wouldn't put their cardio as the highest or best rated cardio, but they're not exhausted. I do think, again, there could be a slight advantage there for Jordan at the end of the fight because you've seen Ewell kind of fade before, but their cardio is very similar. Experience, that's the one edge Andre Ewell has here. He has fought eight UFC fights here to, compared to what, three UFC fights for Charles Jordan, or four, I'm sorry. So he's got double the experience in UFC. Now, the age, 33, about to be 34, verse 26. There's positive and negative on both sides of that. For Charles Jordan, the negative is he is still very young. You see him making mistakes. His grappling isn't great. He can get taken down in a key moment in a round here and lose a round. Um, he can take some sometimes too many punches that he shouldn't be taking. If he cleans up his guard, he cleans up his boxing technique in terms of landing combinations, getting back out, and not taking any punishment. If he does that and looks sharper at 26, he's making big strides. You can see him coming in here and looking like a much better version of the Charles Jordan that we've seen recently. As for on the flip side of Andre Yule, at 33, 34, he's he's at the point where he's going to be at, right? He's in his prime years of his, of his athletic life for mixed martial arts. I think what we see is what we're going to get. Athleticism, in and out, some lower leg kicks, um, medium level power in his hands. He's moving up. Again, a weight class. So this should be a safer cut for him, an easier cut, um, a healthier cut mentally, physically, the whole nine. So can you expect to see a better version of Andre Yule from that standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. At minus 200, you don't love the money line here with Charles Jordan, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advise you, if you're going to bet on Charles Jordan on the money line, take it Monday, Tuesday of this week, because if you're going to wait until Thursday, Friday, you can guarantee that's going to be upwards around minus 250 to minus 300. He's going to be one of those parlay pieces people are going to like. They're going to look at him as... 11-4-1, you know, better overall record, better higher winning percentage. Um, if you look at his recent film, it's, you know, it's pretty exciting stuff. The 11 finishes. A lot of reasons why people are going to start, you know, I think, putting money towards Charles Jordan. As for Andre Ewell, I hate to go against the American brother. You know, I am in the United States here. But in this situation here, I just think that Charles Jordan, the younger fighter, is making big improvements. He'll do just enough here to get the fight done. If not on the cards, the prop bet you're probably going to want to look at, which everyone's going to look at, is the TKO prop here for Charles Jordan. I don't think this fight goes the full distance. I think sometime, I think at some point he wears out Ewell. He pushes the pace on him. He ends up backing him up enough to the point where Ewell falls to the ground, has to sort of you know bottle up, you know sort of ball up, and gets a TKO more from exhaustion and a pounding and not necessarily getting hurt or cut. So I like Charles Jordan to win the fight. And for Jordan at 26 years old, 
he does kind of need this win. He needs to get more consistent. He is very inconsistent. That's one of the big knocks on him. At times in fights where he should be doing better, when he's like minus 500-ish against that fight against Colabio, like he should have he should have won that fight. He made mistakes, didn't show up. Will he show up? Will we see the best version of him? I think we're going to see a pretty good version of him, enough that we're going to send um, him to 11-5 and 1 here after this fight. So that's our breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. Next up, we got a women's flyweight bout between Sajara Eubanks, the American fighter, and Melissa Gatto from Brazil. Gatto 7-0-2 overall, so technically undefeated. She's 4-0-1 in her last five fights, currently a plus-180 underdog on the money line. She hails from Brazil, 25 years old, about to be 26 here in a few months. 5'5 five five in height, the 69-inch reach, she trains out of MSP. As for Sajara Eubanks, she's 7-6 seven, six, seven six overall, so more or less a 500 record, which I don't think does justice for the kind of fighter she is. She's been in there with some really tough competition. We'll talk more about that when we break this film down. She's 3-2 in her last five fights minus 200 on the current money line she hails from maryland 36 years old she's five foot four in height with a 67 inch reach she trains out of nick catone mma so according to tapology here the public votes are coming in for gato i'm a little surprised i do like gato to win the fight but i would have imagined eubanks would have been the favorite considering she's the favorite of the money line as well but gato's getting 71 percent of the votes here only 29 percent of the votes are coming in for eubanks let's look here a little closer at the, the fighter's striking numbers here so for gato she's landing seven strikes per minute absorbing 4.3 that's an excellent ratio and i want to dive into this detail about gato early on in her career she was specifically known as a grappler exclusively grappling submission game in her last fight which is a fight that she came out after like a year and a half to your layoff she comes out there, looks like a completely different fighter on the feet. Her jab is nice. She's, she's working behind her jab, landing combinations. Um, she's got her guard up. Whatever she did during that one and a half, two-year gap between her last fight and the fight before that, she clearly was working on the bag. She was working on her boxing. I think now she's at, at worst an average boxer. So I just want to put that out there. Seven strikes per minute, absorbing 4.3. That's an excellent ratio. On the other side here with Eubanks, she's landing 4.5, six strikes per minute, absorbing 3.59. So both fighters on the positive side, they're striking, but Luis Delgado clearly is the busier striker. As for takedown offense, very similar. Eubanks is just about under two takedowns per 15 minutes at 1.94 takedowns per 15 minutes to be exact. Borgato's averaging 1.50 takedowns per 15, 15 minutes. So very similar in their takedown offense. For defense, Eubanks is defending 65% of the takedowns attempted against her, whereas Gatto's defending 100% of takedowns against her. So, um... I don't know that those numbers tell us a lot. Both of these fighters are very good in grappling, rushing situations. I think Gatto has a little edge in the submission side, whereas Eubanks has maybe a little bit of a power edge. Now, that power will, I think, fade as the fight goes on because it just becomes a war of attrition, you know, and as time goes on in the fight, the power starts to diminish, right? Whereas Gatto, she's using submission technique, not necessarily power and strength and, you know, using like a muscling technique. She's using techniques that are going to be submission techniques. I think that outlasts, um, you know, Sajara Eubanks' efforts on the ground to be, you know, the stronger fighter. Let's look here at more details on the two fighters here. So for Sajara Eubanks, she's from Massachusetts, but she trains out of New Jersey at, at a Nick Katona MMA, as we mentioned. She fought in Invicta prior to joining the UFC. Um, she was an Ultimate Fighter in 2017. And what ended up happening, I want to go way back here, 2017, four years ago, she was supposed to fight Montana or Montano, but she ended up having like kidney failure, like serious condition there. And that was partially due to an unhealthy weight cut. She has missed weight in the past. She has had some problems with her weight cuts. Now, I will say the most recent past, like the last year or two, seems to have that under control. Okay, so it's not as if it's something that's lingering at this point, but it was something early on in her career. She went to Morgan State University. She is a mother. She has a child. Her most notable wins, she beat Betch Carrera in 2019, Caitlin Vieira in 2020, and Aspen Ladd in 2019. 
not the top top of the division, but you saw Caitlin Vieira recently. She's a decent fighter, so she's been in there with some you know decent opponents and has knocked some wins. The biggest wins of her career. Roxanne Montefiore, 2018, and Lauren Murphy, 2018. So she beat those two fighters. The prior fights I mentioned, those were notable fights, not fights that she actually won. I'm sorry. I want to make sure I clarify that. She did not beat Bitch Carrera or Caitlin Vieira or Aspen Ladd, but she did fight those opponents, which were her most notable opponents. Um, some more things about um, our, our girl here, Sajar Eubanks. She's a BJJ black belt. So that's one of her you know strong suits. And you'll see that in her fights when you watch her film. She likes to get on the ground. She likes to wrestle. She has some nice double leg takedowns. Um, she just has a nice core wrestling um, game to her. And so in terms of her experience, she does have the experience advantage here over Gatto. She has had more UFC fights. She's averaging just about two takedowns per per round. I mean, per, per 15 minutes, I'm sorry. So that's a fighter that's going to be aggressive, looking to take the fight to the ground. I like all those factors about Sajar Eubanks. Now, some things about Eubanks' game or technique that kind of concern me. She has had a history of missing weight. She has been very inconsistent. That's why she's seven and six. That's why she has a 500 record. Um, there's been fights where she comes in as a favorite and she kind of just, you know, lazy lays an egg. You know, doesn't show up, doesn't doesn't meet her potential, or fades out. Um, has cardio issues. A very low finish rate. She has one finish in her last nine fights. I mean, yeah, I'll repeat that. She has one finish in her last nine fights. So she's not a very good finisher. I mentioned the fatigue issue. I mentioned the record. Um, she's a BJJ black belt. But here's the thing: she doesn't have a single submission win in her in her entire fight career. So that BJJ black belt, how how valuable is that for her against someone like Gatto, who has already had some submissions and shown that she's you know dangerous in that area? So it just makes me question how good is she at BJJ, and is that really a threat because she doesn't have a single submission win in her career? She's 36 years old, okay, 11 years older than her opponent. Those are my concerns about uh, Eubanks. Now, as for Gatto, I'm going to try not to praise her too much here. I like her to win the fight. I think this one might be special. I think Gatto might be something that might fly up the UFC ranks here soon. She's born and raised in Brazil. She's currently a BJJ instructor at Team Bronx Spartacus Academy. Undefeated fighter with only two draws, okay? So coming in here, we keep trying to keep that O preserved. You know, she's she's obviously motivated. She wants to go to 8-0. She won her UFC debut, um, and she won her, her biggest win of her career was over Carol Rosa, 2018, via Kimura. That film link is in the description. When you watch that film, it's a little grainy. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a ring. But what you see is from her back, and that's notable, from her back, she pulls off a submission. And if you look at it closely, you see what's going on. She initially has a triangle choke going against Carol Rosa. And Carol Rosa's a decent fighter. She's 15-3 and three overall, Carol Rosa. So she's not no slouch, Carol Rosa. She's got her in a triangle choke and can't really quite get it together. So then she grabs Rosa's arm and then ends up pulling off a Kimura. And when you look at the video, it looks like she, she could have done either, either, either submission. She could have triangle choked her or done the Kimura. If that was a street fight, she would have put this person to sleep and broke their arm. So very, very impressive jujitsu skills. Um, some positives here on Melissa Gatto, if I haven't said enough. Right? This is going to be her second fight this year. Okay, So she did come after like a two to three year layoff, but now she's a little busier. Second fight this year. A solid finish rate. She's finished three of her last four fights, okay? Her grappling and takedowns are one of the best parts or best tools in her, her toolbox, right? She's also very productive on her back. She can work off of back, submit people off the back. You have to fear sometimes taking submissions over position. That's one of the things I do worry about her, but man, her submission skills are so good. She's like the female Oliveira, you know, very, very crafty, very lean fighter. She's in tremendous shape. Um, she's going to have a two-inch reach advantage here in this fight. Um, I think her boxing is something we're going to be talking about more after the fight. Her boxing improved so much in the last fight compared to what we had seen from her before. It's going to be something where I think a year or two from now, people will look back and forget entirely what she was like in the beginning of her career when she just didn't have any boxing at all. It was just completely raw on her feet. 
Now, some negatives here on Gatto. She did have a three-year layoff between her, her last fight and the fight before that. I said a year and a half, two years earlier, but it was three years. I apologize. Correction on that. So that you don't like that big layoff, but at the same time, did she use that time to get better? It looked like it. So maybe it was a good reset, get serious about what I'm doing, improve the area that I'm weakest in with her boxing, and she did that. Submission over position. I mentioned that. Sometimes she will give up good position to look for a submission. That, at times, can cost you position in a round. Eubanks is proficient on her on her ground game. She's strong on the, on the ground. I do think, again, I mentioned before, I think that Sajar Eubanks can have a slight advantage in strength and just core strength and power. That's going to probably show up earlier in the fight, not so much late second round or third round. Experience. She only has nine total fights. She's got two draws. She's coming in here as the undefeated fighter, but listen, she did have two draws. Those two draws could have maybe gone the other way. She could be seven and two, right? So anyway, all that said, I do like Gatto to win the fight. The films that we watch in these two fighters, we watch Gatto versus Victoria Leonardo, which that link's in the description. Melissa Gatto versus Cara Rosa. That link's also in the description. And Eubanks versus Reed in 2021, which was earlier this year. So look at those fights if you want to, um, just you know, at your leisure. Sort of, I guess, come to a conclusion of how you feel about these two fighters. I'm I'm very confident in Gatto. I think when this fight is all said and done, she either submits Eubanks, right, by submission, or simply just outpunches her, outvolumes her, is the cleaner boxer. End of round two, full round three, Gatto is going to be so much fresher than Eubanks. And it's not because Eubanks is it's terrible with her cardio. Her cardio, yeah, there's been some issues in the past, but it's just that Gatto is fights at a high pace. Watch her prior fights. In round three, she's almost just as fresh as she is in round one. She's lighting her feet. You can see the way she's built, very lean build. Um, she's going to have nice range in this fight. She's going to have an advantage in range. I see her jab winning all of round three. So if the fight never gets to the round, never gets to the ground in round three, this fight goes to distance. She, she gallops up the points on the feet with the striking, with the jabbing. It's going to be there for her. And I think at some point, if Sajara Eubanks tries to get the fight to the ground too much, God is going to welcome that. She's going to wear her out on the ground and God's going to submit her. So I do like Gatto here. It's a little surprising that she's at plus money. It's got to be simply that Sajara Eubanks has been around. She's a veteran, maybe more well-known. I like Gatto to win the fight. Here's a plus money underdog for you guys to consider. I like her so much that I'll be taking a full unit on her straight up. Now, will I parlay her? I guess you have to parlay her in the lottery parlay. So we'll do that at the end of the show. But uh, yeah, I like Gatto to win the fight. Good luck with this one, guys. All right, all right. We've got another heavyweight fight here to talk about. Justin Taffa from Australia slash New Zealand versus Harry Hunsucker from Kentucky. Hunsucker goes by the Hurricane. He's 7-4 and four overall. 3-2 and two in his last five fights. This will be his second UFC fight. Quite a big dog here at plus 260 in the money line. 32 years old, 11 months, so he'll be 33 years old very, 33 years old very soon. 6'2 in height and a 75-inch reach. He's going to have a 1-inch reach advantage and a 2-inch height advantage here over Taffa. He's had a four-seasons mixed martial arts. As for Justin, the bad man, Tafa, he's 4-3 overall, kind of on a rough patch here, 2-3 and three in his last five fights, minus 340, though, on the money line, which is a little bit shocking, right? Kind of a big favor here for a guy who's uh, not panned out, I think, to meet his potential yet. We'll talk about that. So he's 28 years old, so about five years the junior here of Hurricane uh, Hunsucker. He's six foot in height, so two inches shorter, as we mentioned, and 74-inch reach. He trains out of NTG Fight and Fitness. So according to Tapology, Tafa is the big favorite, getting 81% of the votes here. Currently, only 19% of the votes coming in for Hunsucker. I agree that Tafa should win the fight. I want to emphasize the word should. He should win the fight. Okay. Some striking numbers here on Hunsucker. He's landing 4.33 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 8.44. That's not a typo. The dude is literally dishing out 4.33 strikes per minute and absorbing 8.44. Now, I will, I want to preface, this is just based upon his UFC experience. 
it's not all, all 11 of his fights, so it's a short sample size. But the point is, he uh, clearly got, you know, his output was not great there in his first, you know, two UFC fights. Or I'm, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. His first UFC fight and then his Dana White Contender Series fight. Zero takedowns for 15 minutes and a 0% takedown defense. Now, as for Justin Taffa, he's landing 5.15 strikes per minute, absorbing 6.12. So neither one of these guys has good striking numbers in terms of the fact that they're absorbing more than they're, more than they're dishing out. Takedown offense. Same thing for Tafa. It's non-existent. Zero takedowns for 15 minutes, 100% takedown defense. Now, when you look at the takedowns attempted against Hunsucker and the ones against Tafa, they're very weird takedowns. So in the case of Hunsucker, he got taken down by um, Vandera, but it was more of a weird, like he was trying to go for a Kimura. He got off balance, fell to his back, and then ends up getting grounded, pounded to, to lose the fight. For Justin Tafa, in his fights, it was like weak attempts from Felipe. Uh, when he fought Felipe, Felipe like kind of did a half-ass takedown attempt. Didn't really go for it. I guess it counted as a takedown attempt, so takedown defense is 100%. But I think either guy, if they fight a good grappler or wrestler, could be into some, you know, could, could be some problems for them because they haven't shown that they're very good in that area and fatigue starts to set in later in the fight. Though, as heavyweights, I'm off on a tantrum now, but as heavyweights, you usually don't see a lot of grappling, right? It's usually on the feet. These two guys like to fight on the feet. That's their preference. Now, some notes here on Tafa first, okay? And I got to say this because it just, it kind of popped out to me on film. Justin Tafa has the same exact tattoo as Tuivasa. And when I say same exact, I probably sound like a hillbilly. What I mean is it looks just the same. It's this big tattoo across the lower back, around the sides of the hips, down to the front, like goes down to, I guess, the crotch region. Um, I noticed it on film and it just kind of, you know, wigged me out because uh, they're both uh, similar looking fighters. And I guess, you know, Hawaiian, Samoan, whatever heritage. Um, but anyway, same tattoo, two different guys. Anyway, Justin Tafa, born in New Zealand, but he claims Australian and New Zealand nationality. He's of Samoan descent. He comes from a family of fighters. His grandfather was a national boxing champion. He's got three brothers who are all involved with some form of boxing. Junior Tafa is a top 10 ranked heavyweight in, in kickboxing right now. So he's got fighters all across the family. I believe he also has a younger brother who might be now making his way to mixed martial arts or was supposed to take, take part in Dana White Contender Series this year. I, I, I could be off on that, but point is comes from a family of fighters. He played professional rugby, a la uh, Volkanovski, who was a professional rugby player before he came over to mixed martial arts. It hasn't been the same transition yet for Justin Tafa, but he is a young heavyweight. Consider he's 28 years old, not even near his prime years as a heavyweight. So for him, he's got time. Hopefully learns from his mistakes, learns from some of these close decisions he's lost and gets himself on the right track. One of the things I like about him, he's a natural southpaw kind of can be a problem for most, most fighters who are, you know, tra traditional stance, right-handed. So he's a southpaw. We'll see how he does with that here against Hunsucker. I imagine it's going to be one more level of, of a challenge here for Hunsucker. He has not fought anybody notable. That's tough. Though. He has not fought anyone notable or beat anybody notable. He's only got seven total fights in his record. And you look at the people he's fought. He's fought guys like Jared Vanderer, Vanderer uh, Carlos Felipe, Juan Adams, you know, Jorgen DeCastro, not very big names. And unfortunately, he's lost to some of those names. Like He got beat by Jared Vanderer. He got beat by Carlos Felipe. He got beat by Jorgen DeCastro. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in terms of some positives I like about um, Justin Toffa's game, he does have some UFC experience. For Hunsucker, his second fight. For Dafa, he's fought double the amount of fights, four total UFC fights. High finish rate, okay? He has finishes in all of his career wins as a pro and an amateur. So I thought that was kind of you know, you know nice. He's got some finishes, you know, five total. Um, solid chin. I thought in his fight against Vandera, he really took some tough, tough punches, especially round two. Almost got finished there, but was able to hang on. And also against Carlos Philippe. He took some tough punches, and I, th I thought he took them well. Was able to cover up, never got knocked to the ground. So he's got a pretty good chin. He's pretty durable. His kicking game is excellent. Body kicks and leg kicks just doesn't use it enough. And I imagine part of that is the fight goes on. He starts to wane. Fatigue sets in. He doesn't have the energy to lift his leg up that high. So when he uses the leg kicks, 
When he uses the body kicks, they're effective. The body kicks especially are very, very hard. When you look at the Felipe fight, Carlos Felipe fight, he hits that guy in the midsection. The whole body is, is shaking. Granted, both these guys have a little extra jello, but the point is he's knocking the crap out of people with those body kicks. I could see him hitting Harry Huntsucker in this fight with a body kick that could keel over Huntsucker and lead to a finish. Um, very active fighter, actually both guys. Both guys, this will be their third fight in 2021. So active, um, especially for heavyweights. Heavyweights don't tend to fight that often. So nice to see that. For some negatives here on Justin Toffa's game, he has lost a few fights here now. He's lost three of his last four. Okay, he also lost his UFC debut in 2019 via, via TKO in round one to Jorgen De Castro. And Jorgen De Castro, not for nothing, but he is average okay put it that way um his only ufc victory was over Juan adams who's no longer with the promotion um he's losing as a favorite that's always very concerning he was a minus 190 favorite against his fight against vandera and he lost that fight he was a minus 120 favorite against the castro granted slight favorite but got tko'd in round one he was a plus 165 underdog against carlos felipe and when i saw that i had to take a double take i'm like wait a second Vegas actually didn't favor him to win that fight. Now, he lost that fight by split decision, and some people argue that he won the fight. Ugh, it's tough, man. He definitely lost round two, and he definitely won round one. And there we go. We fall into round three, and round three is like they both had moments. I thought Tafa won round three personally based upon the grappling. Um, he he kind of got a takedown-ish. They both got back to their feet fast. It, it, it was a close round, but I thought he did just enough. But he loses that round. By split decision, I mean, he loses the fight by split decision, and it, and I would go back to the numbers here again. He was he was he was an underdog. So to me, it's like you were an underdog against Carlos Felipe, and nothing against Carlos Felipe. I like the guy's exciting Brazilian, smaller, shorter, thicker heavyweight. Um, no no finishing power at all. This guy's no finishing power. Yet he was able to hurt <laughs> Taha in that fight, and also win the fight. And you know, again, I feel like the books were right on point with that call. They called it a slight, you know, pick him fight him as a dog. He didn't win. So to me, look, here's a guy at minus 335. That's a scary number. That's very, very, or minus 335, minus 340, whatever you have in your book. That's a scary number. Looking directly at the fighters who's going to win the fight, uh, yeah, I think Tafa wins the fight. But that number there is the kind of number you're going to want to have to back off of and find maybe a property that makes more sense, which we're going to talk about. Now, as for Harry Hunsucker, the more I get into this guy's background, the more I talk about his story, his bio and stuff, you're going to start like falling in love with this guy and like, you know, that's what happens with Harry Hunsucker fans. They're like, oh man, he's from Kentucky, you know, born in Cleveland, had a rough upbringing, you know, his, his mom was, you know, a, a victim of domestic violence and, you know, he was abused a little bit as a child and, you know, went through a lot. He's a father of three kids, you know, all American pie. The guy is the kind of guy you want to root for, you know, um, nice little, nice little tidbit on him. He's got a degree from Eastern Kentucky University in public speaking, and he's actually been back to the university to speak to like fellow students and staff, whatever. And he went there recently and gave a talk and they quoted him. It's actually online. This quote, man, it's kind of like, a, it's, it, it tugs at your emotions. Here it is. I've been through some very tough stuff. I watched my mom be abused. I was abused myself. I was poor, involved with drugs and thought I would never make anything of myself. Find and hold on to your identity. And if you lose it, find it again. Don't abandon your friends and family, but limit the time you spend with unsuccessful people. Quote unquote, Harry Hunsucker. So here you got a guy who's got his head screwed on tight a father of three kids. He made his pro debut six years ago, 2015, at the age of 26, also a young heavyweight at 32, in that he still has time to, you know, really grow into his his whole physique, really learn the ropes, um, get better, you know, shore up the deficiencies in his game. Will he do that? I don't know, but he's got time, all right? Now, he's a former HRR MMA heavyweight champion. That promotion, which is in the 
Kentucky, I think Ohio region. Um, he was also an amateur champion in that same promotion. So he's, he fought pretty much his entire life in HRR MMA promotions until he went and made his Dana White Contender Series debut in 2020. And he got mollywop by Vander. And um, it just was sort of like a glimpse into like, listen, this is not the regional promotions anymore. I think as a regional fighter, Harry Hunsucker is a, is a crowd favorite. He's going to do well there. Um, I think PFL, I think, um, you know, maybe even Bellator is going to be a little too high for him based upon where he's at now, what he's showing now. And so, anyway, let's move on here. So, most notable opponents. He lost to Tua Vasa in 2021. He lost to Vandera in 2020. So, he's been in there with some average, you know, heavyweights. In both situations, he was finished, okay? Some positives like about Harry Huntsucker. He's got a very high finish rate himself. Of seven wins that he has in his career, all of those are by finish. Now, interesting little tidbit on Harry Huntsucker. He's never been at a round one. Never been to round two. Justin Taffa has been a decision his last two fights. Clearly has the cardio, has the patience, um, and, and can work behind a jab. Harry Huntsucker has, he's a one-trick pony. He's got one path to victory. Just throwing bombs, baby. Throwing bombs and brawling. <clears throat> like backyard brawl. Like, I don't give a shit if I get hit. I don't care if I take two or three to give out one. That's his style. That's his only way to win a fight. That's why he finishes all his fights in round one, whether he wins or loses. I'm going to die on my sword. I'm going to go out on my, you know, my sword. Whatever he's going to do, it's going to be fast and furious. That obviously has some pros and cons. It's exciting on the, on, on the fighters, you know, for the, for the fans. We're going to see something exciting. We're going to see a round one finish here. But longevity-wise, it's going to be a problem for him. He's not going to finish UFC guys in round one like he was doing in the regional promotions, right? Kind of makes sense. He's at the prime age for fighting in, the, in, in terms of heavyweight. I mentioned that both about both fighters. I'm going to mention it again. These guys are right at the beginning point of their prime. So that's a good thing for both of them to have time to, to learn, get better, and improve. And both active fighters. I did mention both these guys are from their third fight this year. Now, some negatives here on Harry Hunsucker, some things that concern me about him. The last three people that he beat, here's their records. Four and four, nine and 16, 15 and 18. If you look at the last person that he, be, he beat, which is uh, over at HRMA Promotions, he fought a guy who literally, he kicks him like one time in the leg, guy starts limping, um, punches him once or twice in the head, the guy starts staggering, and then just clips him and the fight's over. And Huntsucker is fighting just like like robot style, like this. No, no good technique, not moving his head, not setting up punches, just walking forward, boom, 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 boom. And the guy who's fighting just looks like he's never been in a fight before. So unfortunately for Huntsucker, though he's a crowd favorite in the regional promotion, he is fighting really low-level guys. It, it makes sense. He comes to the UFC. Even if he's fighting lower-level UFC guys, he's going to have a hard time, right? So um, very off-balance when he comes in. So I told you he's his like a one-trick pony in terms of what he's looking for. Big punch, power punch, something to really hurt his opponent. That's his only path to victory. On top of doing that, he leans in. He's coming in off-balance, heads wide open. He's open for a short hook, an uppercut, um, some type of short punch that's going to really stun him. I could see that happening here. I could see him trying to lean in. If the fight ends up going to late round one or somehow gets to round two, I don't know what he's going to look like. I can't imagine what he looks like in round two or three. All these heavyweights tend to get a little tired. Here's a guy who's never been to round two or three. If that happens, I imagine his guard's going to start to fall. He's going to get desperate and try a few overhand big punches, and Chuzz and Top is going to catch him. Body kick, straight punch, hook, um, it's going to all be there available for Tafa, especially if Tafa is smart and says, you know what, let me just work my jab in round one. Let me just keep it at a distance. And you know what, let's see what happens in round two. He could do that if he wants to, or you could just put the pressure on him and try to get him out of the round one. Now, uh, film links. Here's the fights that we watched in these two fighters. We watched Huntsucker versus Vanderer in 2020 Dana White Contender Series. We watched Huntsucker versus Tuivasa. And then Tafa versus Vanderer and Tafa versus Felipe. A little MMA math for you there. They both fought Vanderer. When Harry Huntsucker fought Vanderer, he got finished in round one. When Tafa fought Vanderer, it went three rounds. He lost by decision. It was a tough fight. You know, 
both guys uh, did a pretty good job. So um, bottom line is this, you know, I think if you're doing MMA math, you clearly can see Tafa did a little bit better against another UFC fighter versus Harry Hunsucker. Anyway, let's talk about the prop you want to look at here. The prop that makes the most sense is the fight just does not go the distance. So if you like Hunsucker and you're like, you listen, give him a chance. It's a fighter's chance. Any given Sunday, heavyweights, someone can get caught, right? Harry Hung, Harry's going to at least throw a few big shots. Now, do they land? I don't know. But he's going to throw a few big shots. So into the distance, either fighter to fighter just doesn't go the distance is minus 400. It's chalky, but let's be honest. That's the safest bet you can make in this fight. This way you're covered both sides. Whoever gets clipped, they get clipped. Minus 400. To sweeten it a little bit more, under one and a half rounds is minus 175. I think that's like stealing money there because think about it this way. Hunsucker never been out of round one, okay? Even if it goes to early round two, he's going to be at that point in such uncharted territory. Toph is going to be looking to build momentum. This is probably not go past the midway point of round two. I don't see it happening. So minus 175 for under one and a half. I like that. And then the KO prop for Justin Toph by KO. I don't know what the number is on that right now. It'll probably be moving around, but I like that prop as well. I think the reality is, I'm not a betting man. <laughs> anyway, if I was a betting man, you're putting your money on Tafa. I'm going to get behind Tafa, and I'm going to get behind him on that prop at that under one and a half. I'm going to at least take a half unit on that and maybe a, another half unit on him by KO. In terms of a parlay piece, yeah, I am taking this as a parlay piece. I will be putting Tafa into my top ticket parlays. Um, and I think at minus 335, that's the best you could do. You're not going to take this money line and bet it straight up. That would be that would be crazy. Like Imagine putting $335 up or 340 or 350 to 100 bucks in this fight with Tafa, who's a guy who's middling 500 level fighter, who's been underwhelming, who's lost against Carlos Felipe, um, you know, who's had a little bit of a rough run here, who's lost against Jared Vander, got knocked out by Jorgen DeCastro. Like, could Harry Hunsucker clip him and just walk out of there with his hands up? Like, hey, man, I won. You could see it happening, right? You can see it happening. So I like Justin Tafa to win. I've got confidence in him to win the fight. I think he goes to five and three here. I think Hunsucker continues to realize this UFC thing is a whole different deal. Going to eventually probably find his way back out of UFC, unfortunately. But I like the guy. I like his story. And if he wins the fight, I'll be very happy for him. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. And as usual, please, if you haven't done so already, pow, pow, pow. Please like and subscribe. Come on back. Invite your friends. If you're winning anything based upon our advice, come on back and celebrate with us. Put it in the comment section. If you're losing based upon our advice, come on back here. <clears throat> And give me hell, you know, write about the story of how you lost money based upon this advice that we're giving. Um, anyway, thanks again for joining us here, guys. Please like and subscribe, and we'll see you guys soon. Take care. Up again, a bantamweight bout between the Brazilian veteran Ronnie Barcelos and Victor Henry, the newcomer here to the UFC. Victor Henry goes by La Mangosta. La Mangosta translates to the mongoose in Spanish. Henry is 21 and 5 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights. He hails from Los Angeles, California. 34 years old, so making his UFC debut a little bit later than most fighters, but nonetheless, it's better late than never, right? He's 5'7 in height. We have no reach number on him, but I would guesstimate based upon watching his film, his reach is comparable to that of Ronnie Barcelo, so about 67 to 68 inches is what I would imagine for Victor Henry. He trades out of UWF USA. As for Barcelos, he's 16-2 and two overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, he's 34 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67-inch reach. He trains out of Rizzo RVT. According to Tapology of the public vote here, it looks like Barcelos is getting a lot of the votes here. Almost 90% of the votes here are coming in for Barcelos, so at 91 92%. No love here for the American Henry. I'm going to try to give you guys at least some reasons to take a double take here with, with Henry. Um, I do think Barcelos wins the fight. I do think he's the more superior fighter right now. 
But when you look at Victor Henry's tapology, there's some names that come up, some people he's beaten that you're like, whoa, UFC level guys. So we'll talk about it. Now, according to the striking numbers here in both fighters, we don't have striking numbers on Victor Henry because it's his first UFC fight. As for Barcelos, he's landing 5.39 strike per minute, absorbing 4.36, landing 1.79 takedowns per 15 minutes, and defending his takedowns at a 92% rate. So good takedown defense. Um, in my opinion, he's not active enough with wrestling. I mean, it's averaging just under two takedowns for 15 minutes, which is okay. But he's a very good wrestler. doesn't seem to use it enough, at least for my liking. Let's talk here a little bit more about these fighters in detail here. So first off, let's talk with Ronnie Barcelos. He was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. He started grappling and wrestling at the age of five. Uh, reason being is that his dad was actually a very good freestyle wrestler. So his dad got him into it. He was an amazing amateur wrestler. So like amateur meaning like probably I would equate that like to college here in the United States, like going up through like 18, 19, 20 years old, five time Brazilian national wrestling champion, two times South American, all of South America wrestling champion. So wrestling wise, very good. Um, but when you watch him fight, it's frustrating. He doesn't use his wrestling enough, at least not for my liking. I wish he would use it more. He started his pro career in 2012 in Shudo, Brazil. Um, notable opponents for him, Khalid Tadha, Tamir Valiev, and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Jesus, tongue twister there for me, right? Um, so not big time names for Ronnie Barcelos. He's still definitely climbing his way up the ladder. At 34, it's like now or never. Um, I'd say his toughest opponent to date was probably Tamir Valiev, the fight that he just lost, which we'll talk a little bit about that as a close um, close fight. One judge actually had it as a draw. Um, but anyway, the point is, those are his no most notable opponents he's fought against. Some positives on Ronnie Barcelos on his fighting game and what he brings to the table. He's fought solid competition, five UFC fights so far, and an ultimate fighting fight. Um, quality losses. His last loss against Valiev, listen, that was a tough loss. One judge actually thought it was a draw, um, so it was close. Uh, all three judges actually had him winning round two, and one judge had him winning round two, 10-8. He, he, like, messed up Valiev in round two. He knocked him down clean twice in round two, and the ref was just about to step in there and, and stop the fight. So it was a very quality loss from the standpoint that here's a guy who's 18-2 and two in Valiev, who's 3-0 in his first U three UFC fights, um, you know, brings a lot to the table. So, you know, bottom line is it's not the worst loss. Quick striker and combination puncher. One thing about this guy, you could not tell by watching him fight that he's a former wrestler. His striking technique is beautiful, and it comes in combinations. It works straight down the pipe, no looping nonsense, whatever the case may be. Um, so I like his boxing, very good, on, very good on his feet. He pushes the pace and controls the center of the cage. That's consistent with all his fights. So I do like that about him. Now, with a fighter like Henry, Henry will try to push pace sometimes, but I think he won't be able to do that against someone like Barcelos, who really owns the center of the octagon. He's only been stopped one time in his entire career, and it was via a rear naked choke. So he's never been knocked out. Now, some of the concerns that I have with Barcelos, his boxing defense in the fight versus Valiev, one of the reasons why he loses that fight on the scorecards is because when he's trading with, with Valiev, he leaves himself too open. I'd like to see him shore up his boxing defense, just meaning like not defense from the standpoint of getting hurt, but just his guard, not get hit, hit so much and so cleanly when he's in his trading situation. So just have to increase his, his, his defense. That's all I would say. Um, forgets his wrestling in BJJ. That's a big note for me on my notes here. He just doesn't wrestle enough. Here's a guy who's a South American, you know, multi-champ and Brazilian national champ, whatever the case may be. Wrestle more. Wrestle to take over the round. Wrestle to win the round. If it's a closed round, wrestle. So I want to see him do more of that. He could be a little more active to my liking. This is his second fight this year, and he fought only one time in 2020. So, you know, I'd like to see Barcelos be a little more active. And the fact that he's getting older, he should be more active, right? The expiration date is coming up soon. A low finish rate, and at least recently, recently. He's had some finishes before in his career, but his last three fights have all gone to decision. 
He was a minus 225 favorite against Valia of his last fight, and he lost that fight by decision. So again, over a 2-1 to favorite coming to that fight, and he lost. He was also a minus 435 favorite against Taha the fight before that, and he won by decision, which is not comfortable, right? A minus 435 favorite suggests he should be finishing the fight. So anyway, on to Victor Henry from California. He fought in Ryzen, actually was like 2-0 or 3-0 in Ryzen, some nice wins. He is the former LXF champion, which is a, a belt that he won two months ago, October. He won that belt, um, so I guess he had to surrender that belt since now he's in the UFC. His most notable opponents to date, this is where it gets a little bit weird now. He fought Kyler Phillips, like 9-2 Kyler Phillips, who's in the UFC, and he won that fight by split decision in CXF 15 back in 2018, so just three years ago. So... Like, consider this. Here's another thing about this fight. This fight was after Kyler Phillips had already won on Dana White's Contender Series. So, like, the year before this fight occurred, Kyler Phillips wins on Dana White Contender Series, first round finish. He ends up, for some reason, I don't know why, not fighting right away in UFC. But the point is, Kyler goes back to this promotion, CXF, faces off here against Alex Henry, and loses by split decision. Okay? Now, Kyler Phillips only has one of the loss in his entire career, and that was by decision to Raleon Paeva. So, if you look at the situation there... Kyler Phillips is a UFC fighter. He has two losses in his entire career. One's against another UFC guy, and then against this guy, Alex Henry, right? Did I say Alex Henry? Victor Henry. Jeez, excuse me. All right. Um, another win on his tapology, Anderson Dos Santos. So say what you want about Dos Santos, who's 21-9 overall, so not the greatest of records, but it was a round two TKO, and that was also just three years ago, 2018. So 2018 was a big year there for Victor Henry. He got two nice wins that now have aged very well against two guys that are in the UFC, mind you, okay? I mean, just hearing that and processing that information, that at least tells me that this guy, Victor Henry, is definitely UFC capable, right? He's UFC caliber. This call-up maybe was, you know, in the waiting. His opportunity finally came. And yes, it's a last-minute call-up, but it's not a guy who's off the street of bum who's not UFC caliber. I think he actually is UFC caliber. Now, how good is he? Is he going to be good enough to beat Ronnie Barcelos? I don't think so. But just, just get the idea of your mind that this guy's just some guy off the street who hasn't fought UFC-level guys. He's got wins over UFC-level people. Now, some positives that I like here about Victor Henry's game. He's a very active fighter. He's actually fought 12 times in the last three years. This will be his second fight this year. He fought twice in 2020. He's got a pretty good kicking game. So body kicks, leg kicks, um, he's active. He'll throw some front, front kicks. He mixes up his kicks a lot, which I do like. Six submission wins, so he's got some submission ability. Quality loss against Denis Laratenev. I'm probably killing that name. Latenev is 12-2 and two overall. That was his last loss, and that was actually a rematch. He had beat Denis Latenev, uh, Laratenev before, but then he lost his rematch by decision. He's never been finished. Okay, so all four of his losses were actually by decision, and two of those were by split decision, so maybe he could actually only have two losses instead of four, you know, depending on how things shook out. But anyway... He's got a pretty good finish rate. He's got four straight wins that are all by finish. So pretty good finisher. Now that stands to test. We'll see how that works in the UFC. That's been outside the UFC. So four straight finishes in a row outside the UFC. Some concerns about his game. Low-level competition, okay? So for example, his last two opponents, their records that he's beaten, the last two wins he has, those opponents' records are 10-8-1 and 28-14-5. and um, His first UFC fight that's tough, right? Here's the bright lights. It's, it is at least the UFC, uh, the Vegas, right? It's not like the full-on crowd and the whole nine. So he should be at least a little bit more calmer than it would be if it was a full crowd. But with that said, it's still the first UFC fight. I, I'd say at 34 years old, maybe he's more mature than maybe some of the younger guys. So hopefully that helps him a little bit. Um, and in the recent interviews, he suggested, listen, I'm ready, man. 
I can't remember his exact quote, but his, his exact quote was something like along the lines of like something that uh, Diaz would say, like Nate Diaz would say something like, fighters are over, always ready. I'm always ready. I'm always prepared, you know? So that was sort of the way he attacked this fight coming in late notice. It's like, I'm always ready, man. Um, he's very hittable in his exchanges, which is a really big concern for me in this fight because Ronnie Barcelo throws nasty, quick, hard combinations. Now, Barcelos has not had any finishes in a while. This could get him back into the finish column here, especially if Victor Henry stands in front of Barcelos and tries to trade with him. He's very hittable, um, Victor Henry, that is. I saw him get a hit a lot in prior fights. His last fight against Morales, he won that fight. He wore Morales down, but Morales was landing a lot of punches on him, clean punches, and Victor was just sort of eating it. Can't do that with an elite-level striker like Barcelos who will hurt him, you know, so I don't like that part of his game. Now, the films that we watched, these two fighters to break down this film, we watched, we watched Victor Henry versus Kyler Phillips in 2018, Henry versus Morales in 2021, Barcelos versus Valiev in 2021, and Barcelos versus Taha. Those four links are in the description to watch those films if you want to watch them yourself. In terms of their side-by-side -side breakdown for experience, I give Ronnie Barcelos the experience edge, even though Victor Henry's fought more fights, 26 total fights compared to 18 for Barcelos. Barcelos has obviously fought more UFC fights and a little bit tougher opponents. Fighter IQ, I also give an edge there to Barcelos because again, he's fought some tougher opponents. Not that I think Victor is a dumb fighter, it's just a matter of this is his first UFC fight. There's only so much information you can collect from him watching or watching him fight regional scene type of level fighters. Cardio-wise, I do give an edge to Barcelos. I've seen him in round three in the UFC. I've seen how he's able to function, grapple and wrestle. In the limited film that I've watched on Victor Henry, he seems to slow down quite a bit. You know, round two, there's definitely a, a, a big dip in his output. Um, so I do see that to be a problem. If this fight does go to deeper waters, round three, I think Barcelos is going to be a lot sharper, his punches, his combinations. Um, he's going to look like the sharper fighter, the healthier, you know, the more energetic fighter, I believe, later the fight goes. So in terms of finishing ability, I give these guys both around the same rating. Now, the reason being is, again, Barcelos is dangerous. I mean, he's got some submission ability, got amazing wrestling ability, as we talked about. He's got power in his hands, but he hasn't had any finishes recently. Victor Henry has got four finishes in a row of the four, four wins that he's had, the last four wins, but that's been again outside the UFC. So I don't know where we're at here finishing-wise. Do I see a finishing happen, finish happening here? I could see Barcelos overwhelming him. I could see that happening, but I also could very well see it go in the distance, right? You know, so boxing-wise, I give an edge to Barcelos. I think he's much cleaner, much sharper, throws combinations. Victor Henry gets a little sloppy, especially when his cardio starts to slip. Whereas Barcelos, even when he's getting more fatigued or tired, he's still striking with clean, you know, clean accuracy. For grappling, give a strong edge to Barcelos. The wrestling, the grappling backgrounds there, I wish he would use it more, but he's definitely a better wrestler or grappler than Victor Henry. Now, with that said, Victor Henry... He's got some submissions. He's no slouch on, 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 when it comes to jiu-jitsu. Six submissions actually over the course of his career out of the 17 wins he has. So, um, I'm sorry, six out of the 21 wins he has. So, Barcelos has only been submitted one time in his career. Now, it was a long time ago, I think like 2014 or something like that, seven years ago. Do I see Henry submitting a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy who's from Brazil? It seems a little bit awkward. That, that prop would probably be amazing. Anyway, the long and short of it is I don't have a lot of confidence at Barcel in Barcelos at minus 335. I think that number is a little scary, and it could blow up in your face. If Victor Henry comes out here and squeezes out one round, gets the fight to the later rounds, I could see him making this a little ugly. The guy is, look, he's a bit of a veteran coming in the first UFC fight, but he's kind of a veteran. He's beaten other guys that are in the UFC. It wouldn't be shocking to me if he wins this fight. Now, with that said, how am I going to bet on this fight? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would put Ronnie Barcelos into my parlay, my lottery parlay, but in a parlay in general, he's going to be a low ticket part of that parlay. I can't have him as a top ticket you know, piece in that parlay because I don't have a lot of confidence here. He should win the fight. Every which way, he's better here than Victor Henry. But I say, but 
Victor Henry's a little bit of a, a little bit of a wild card here. And is this view a first UFC fight? Could he come out round one, just come crazy out there, push the pace, make Ronnie Barcelos uncomfortable, and just win round one? And then things just change mentally. Everything just changes now because now Barcelos comes to the corner. He's like, oh, I drop round one. I don't know, but you know, I'm, I guess I'm thinking outside the box. If you're looking at a prop bet here, then the fight goes over one and a half. That's a prop bet I would look at here. The fight goes to decision. Hmm. It kind of feels like it should, right? You feel like it's going to be like an ugly match or it's going to go to decision. Probably that prop bet would be good to look at. I'm not sure. This fight is going to be one of the toughest ones for me to figure out. It's going to be into. It's going to be in some of my long extended parlays. But betting it straight up, I don't have a side here. I want to say dogger pass for Victor Henry because you could sort of see this coming. But Ronnie Barcelos is just a superior boxer. He's going to be able to land more punches. He should land the cleaner punches. And if Victor Henry does not shore up his stand-up defense, he might even clip. So that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Next up, we got the last fight in the prelim card. So it's the main event of the prelims. It's a middleweight bout between two American fighters, Gerald Mearshat and Dustin Stolfitz. Mearshat's the veteran here, having fought 47 total MMA fights with 25 submissions. We're going to talk more about that here as we break down this film. So we've got a guy here with a lot of submissions under his belt. So Mearshat goes by GM3. He's 33 and 14 overall. Minus 225 in the current money line. He's 3 and 2 in his last three, I'm sorry, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. He hails from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 34 years old. Six foot one in height with 77 and a half inch reach. He trains out of Aguilar Combative Systems. As for Dustin Solfis, who is an American fighter, but has made his way to Germany where he now resides, lives, trains year round. So he's kind of a transplant, born in Lancaster, raised as an Amish person. So not too far from where actually I live. I live in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. So the Amish reside like more towards like Quakertown and whatnot, maybe 45 minutes or so from where I live. Anyway, shout out to the Amish. Shout out to Dustin Stolfitz, who is an Amish-born person who's now in Germany. Whatever, let's keep going now. This breakdown here, Dustin's 13-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Currently an underdog here, plus 180 on the money line. He's 30 years old, 6 foot in height with 75-inch reach. He trains out of a small gym there in uh, Germany, which is run by a coach called Andy Conda. His name is Andy Conda, so I've just put Andy Conda MMA as his uh, gym of choice. So it's a small gym in Germany. I don't know much more about it. According to Tapology here, Mearshat is the favorite to win, getting 92% of the votes here. Only 8% of the votes are coming in for Stolfitz. I agree that at first glance, Mearshat, the veteran, you know, fought a lot more MMA fights, better competition, probably should win the fight. But, you know, you start looking at film here, and there's something about Dustin Stolfitz, you know, the 30-year-old, that gives you at least a reason to sort of take a double take. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint the picture here for you why I think this is a dogger pass situation. I'll be going at this as a dogger pass. Not sure how much I'm going to actually wager on this. I just know that at the minus 200-ish range, minus 225, minus 235 for Gerald Mearshat, no disrespect to the, to the veteran. I just don't have the world of confidence at that kind of you know price tag. So let's talk here about the numbers on these two fighters, striking numbers. Dustin Stolfitz is landing 3.68 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.00. Not great there. He's absorbing, obviously, more than he's dishing out. As for Mirashat, very similar. He's dishing out 3.41 strike per minute, but absorbing 3.75. So that tells you both these guys on the feet do not have the greatest boxing or striking defense. And their volume at times is a little bit less than their opponent, okay? And I think you see that at times when you watch film on both fighters. I'm not sure which one's the better boxer. Maybe I give an edge to Gerald Mirashat from his jab, from the perspective that his jab seems to be more consistent. And he's a veteran, so he's done just some more fighting over the years. Dustin Stolfitz throws, you know, sporadic, you know, combinations. Sometimes 
Um, he'll throw a big punch. He's off balance. Um, and every now and then he looks decent, you know, so his boxing, okay. Neither one of these guys is an amazing boxer, but again, the numbers sort of show that. Now, in terms of takedown offense, Gerald Mearshat's landing 2.58 takedowns per 15 minutes, and Dustin Solfish is landing just under a half a takedown per 15 minutes. So clearly the wrestling advantage is there for Gerald Mearshat, who is a submission guru. Again, 25 total submissions. That's got to be number one or a record in his weight class. Um, and look, his last four or five fights have all been finished by submissions, the one that he has won at least. So the guy, I think, what, actually nine of his last 10 wins, nine of his last 10 wins have been by submission. So you're talking about a guy in Gerald Mearshat who is very, very proficient in the submission game. For takedown defense, these guys are equal, 50% for Stolfitz, 43% for Mearshat. And uh, as we mentioned, according to Tapology, Mearshat's getting a lot of the votes here. 92% of the votes coming in for Mearshat, only 8% for Stolfitz. I think that Dustin Stolfitz deserves some attention here. Let's talk about it. Let's look here, more detailed breakdown of these two fighters. So for Dustin Stolfitz, um, he had one amateur fight, 2012, actually in Pennsylvania, lost that fight. 2014, he relocates to Germany, more so for academic reasons. He's actually at that point going to graduate school. And so in the process of doing that, he continues his MMA training, finds a small gym in Germany, and continues to move on to the point where he's at now. For notable fights for uh, Stolfitz, he fought against Rodolfo Vieira earlier this year. I thought he had a good account of himself in that fight. The link's in the description. You can watch the fight yourself. I thought round one, he looked very good. Arguably could have even won round one. Round two, he started to get pieced up. You can see the damage on his face. It's one of the things about his game is a little concerning. He tends to show damage on his face pretty quickly, and it's like bleeding, swelling, the whole nine. But he's in there. He's going toe-to-toe with Rodolfo Vieira. Fight goes to round three. It's a good close fight. He just makes one small mistake. And when you make one small mistake against a guy like Mirshat in this case, or a guy like Rodolfo Vieira, who's very good at submissions, he ends up giving his back gets rear, rear naked choked, quick tap, and it's over. But I thought everything up until that point was pretty good. And I imagined in my head, if this fight goes similarly, so let's say this fight against Mirishak goes to round late round two, round three, and it's close, I like the opportunity that Stolfus has to possibly sting Mirishak. And I'm going to talk more about the chin of Mirishak and why I think it's possible this could happen. But I'm thinking this fight's going to be similar to the fight against Rodolfo Vieira. Who's better, Rodolfo Vieira or Gerald Mearshat right now. I think they're very similar. I'm not even sure which, which guy's better, but I think they're very similar. Now, the prior, the prior fight before that, Kyle Dalkis, he lost by decision against Dalkis in 2020. You know, Kyle Dalkis, he's at least, I would, top 10, top 15 contender. Pretty decent. Again, comparable to someone like Mearshat and pretty good at submissions. They went the distance. I thought, again, he had a good accountability for himself. Not the greatest wrestler. He's not amazing on the on the ground. But on the feet, he can crack. He showed a good chin against Vieira. Good chin versus Dalkis. Um, positives that I like here on, on Dustin Tolfus. I like his forward pressure. He tends to own the center of the cage. He likes to move forward. Now, at the same time, he might be eating some punches, um, using his head as a blocking mechanism. But the point is, he does push the pace, does like to back his opponent up. He's got a high finish rate, at least outside the UFC. Okay, He's got seven finishes in his last nine wins. Again, does not include any UFC finishes. Pretty active fighter. This will be his fourth fight in the last two years. And again, I mentioned before, a solid chin. Now, some things that concern me about Stolfitz. He's 0-2 in the UFC. His striking defense is definitely less to be desired. He shows a lot of damage on his face. Tends to show damage pretty early on in the fight. He is a replacement here in this fight. Originally, this fight was supposed to be Mirshat versus Magomedov. So he's coming in here, not last minute, last minute, but he is still a replacement fighter for this fight. As for Mirshat, the veteran, 47 pro fights. 25 career submissions. His most notable opponents, Kamzat Chimaev back in 2020, 
Granted, he lost 17 seconds in round one via TKO in that fight, but still a notable guy. Kevin Holland, 2019, Thiago Santos, 2017. You'll notice in his topology, clearly much better, higher level opponents, much tougher, tougher opponents than what um, Dustin Stolfus has faced up to this point in his career. Now, some real big positives here, Amir Shat. Five straight wins by submission. Nine of his last 10 wins by submission. I mentioned that before. Back-to-back -back wins right now in the UFC. And as an underdog in his last two fights, one of those two fights, he was a very big underdog. Excellent level of competition. Just some of the names to consider here. Makhmed Muradov, Kamzat Chemaev, Thiago Santos, Kevin Holland, Jack Hermanson. Very active fighter, especially as a veteran. This will be his third fight this year. Now, some concerns I have with Mirashat. He holds his head up high. He's willing to trade. He'll give one to take two, give two or three to take four or five. He's got okay power, but most of his throwing offense or striking offense is ultimately a setup to get his fighter either pinned against the cage, peel him down to the ground, or somehow get a takedown, single leg, double leg, whatever it takes to get his fighter to the ground, or even maybe just pull guard and pull the fighter down with him. He lost to Sam Alvey by decision in 2014. God bless Sam Alvey, but anytime I see a fighter has lost to Sam Alvey, it could be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 weeks ago, always concerns me. And it's a part of Gerald Mearshat's game. There's a dull part of his game at times where he slows down. He sort of becomes um, just, just, I don't know how to explain it, just very neutral. It doesn't become an explosive fighter. Is it cardio? I'm not sure. Is it just a lack of killer instinct? Is it because he's not comfortable on the feet? I think what happens in this fight, this is, a, this is a, just a little bit of advice here from a betting perspective, something to consider. Take the advice, don't take the advice, but here's what I think the best spots are in this fight. The fight does not go the distance as minus 170. Okay, now here's why I'm saying I'm saying that. You got Gerald Mearshat, who's constantly submitting his opponents. Fight's not going the distance. In his losses recently, he's getting knocked out. He's getting knocked out early and often, okay? So when you look at his recent fights, when he lost against Chemaev, round 117 seconds. When he lost against Ian Heinish, round one, a minute and 14 seconds. Um, his prior loss was, an, it was a decision against um, Eric Anders. And then before that was Kevin Holland's decision. But the one before that, round one against Jack Hermanson, he got guillotine choked. So he has shown the ability, Gerald Mearshat, that is, to get finished pretty quickly in his fights. On the flip side, when he's winning, he's submitting his opponents. You look at Dustin Stolfitz, he is going to decision every now and then, but not often. He did go to decision with Cal Dalkis, but his most recent fight against Vieira, he got submitted round three. His prior fight, he finished the guy in round one. Prior fight before that, had a round three finish, round two finish in the prior fight. And as we mentioned before, has a pretty high finish rate for Dustin Stolfitz, that is. So you imagine both these guys are coming in here with fairly high finish rates. They hold their heads up a little bit high. They're willing to trade. I think either one can get hurt in the feet. You know, I'm guesstimating there's a chance for Dustin Stolfus to hurt Gerald Mearshack if they're trading too much. But either way, at minus 170, I think that's a good spot to be in. Now, if you're looking at specific props per fighter, how about that plus 180 sub prop for Gerald Mearshack? That's, you know, usually that would be more like plus 300 or, or something like that for a normal fighter. But everyone knows, the bookies know that Gerald Mearshack is a submission monster. So plus 180. If you like Gerald Mearshat to win the fight, it's most likely by submission. I, I just don't see this thing going three full rounds. There's going to be some aggressiveness on both sides, especially from the case of Dustin Stolfus. If he's losing the fight, Dustin, that is, he's going to push tempo. He'll at least do the best he can to try to do something to get the fight in his favor, but in the process, will probably make a mistake, expose himself up, give his back up to Gerald Mearshat. So that plus 180 number there for a sub, I like that for Gerald Mearshat. Now, plus 1,100. The KO prop for Dustin Stolfus. I'm shocked that it's that high. Going to play that for sure. Not sure how aggressive I'm going to be on that, but anywhere from a quarter unit to a half a unit on that plus 1,100 KO prop for Dustin Stolfus. Gerald Mearshat, 
Not so sure about his chin of late. I think he's susceptible to get cracked. I like that prop quite a bit. Anyway, all right, so we're back now. Anyway, so in terms of the wrap up here, the summary, looking at the fighters side by side, experience wise, I give an edge to Gerald Mearshat. IQ, edge to Mearshat. Cardio wise, very similar. Guys are very, very similar in that perspective, have both shown in later rounds of the fight to still be there not slow down too much. If anything, I give a slight edge to the younger fighter in Dustin Stolfitz. In terms of boxing, I give a slight edge to Dustin Stolfitz as well. I think he throws the more effective, harder strikes on the Gerald Mearshat. Mearshat has maybe better technique. Um, need the guy's high volume, but the harder punches are going to be coming from Stolfitz, I believe. Finishing ability, I give an edge to Gerald Mearshat again for all the submissions, 25 submissions. For Stolfitz, He's done it outside the UFC. He's got to do it in the UFC to prove it, you know? Excuse me. As for grappling, definitely a strong edge there for Gerald Mearshat. Again, submission ability, wrestling ability. So there's your breakdown, guys. I like Gerald Mearshat six, seven times out of 10 to win this fight. But there's that three times, two times out of 10 where Dustin Stolfus comes in here and brings the heat and catches Gerald Mearshat in the chin. I think that happens at plus 185. This is probably my only gonna, my only going to be playing the card of a dog or, play, or dog or pass play will be the entire card. This will be it. I think Dustin Stolfus comes in here, has a chance to surprise some people, knock off the veteran, and pick up a much, ne much needed win for him. So there's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Main card opens up with a battle between two veterans, Darren Elkins and Cub Swanson. Both American fighters, Darren Elkins goes by the damage. He's 26-9 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Plus 170 in the money line. He's out of Sacramento, California. 37 years young, 5'10 in height with a 71-inch reach. He's out of Dunlin, Valetudo. As for Cub Killer Swanson, he's 27-12 overall, 2-3 as well in his last five fights. Minus 190 on the money line. He's out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. 38 years old, so one year older than our buddy here, Elkins. 5'8 in height, 2 inches shorter, with a 70-inch reach, so 1-inch disadvantage there in reach for Cub Swanson. He's out of Jackson Wink MMA. According to Tapology, Swanson, who is the favorite here, at, according to the public votes coming in, and he is a bit of a fan favorite. He's getting 73% of the votes here on Tapology. 12, or 27% of the votes are coming in, excuse me, for Elkins. Looking at the striking numbers here for Darren Elkins, he's landing 3.46 strikes per minute. Absorbing 3.05, not terrible there, but a positive ratio nonetheless. As for Cub Swanson, 4.63 output, 3.66 per minute. So a little better of a ratio and a little bit more output. And that's more, like, more or less because of the way Darren Elkins fights. Darren Elkins is a bit of a wrestler. Well, actually, no, that's an understatement. He's, a, he's a very much of a wrestler. He prefers to wrestle, get the fight to the ground, peel his opponents down on the side of the cage. We'll talk a little bit about this. Now, for takedown defense, Cub Swanson is defending at a 60% rate and Elkins at 56%. That could be a bit of a problem. Look at the numbers there. For Elkins, he's averaging just about two and three quarters takedowns per 15 minutes. And for Cub Swanson, just about one takedown per 15 minutes. And so for Cub Swanson, he can get a takedown from here, you know, there, you know, here and there. But it's not really a cornerstone of his game. Whereas Darren Elkins looks to grind and pull the fight to the ground. So that 60% takedown defense for Cub Swanson is going to be tested. Now, looking here at some of the notes that I have on the fighters here, let's talk here about Cub Swanson first. If you don't know about this guy's background, or if you do know, if you're an MMA kind of veteran of the sport, you've been around, you know his backstory, just fast forward the video. For those who don't know, let me give you a little backstory here on Cub Swanson. Born and raised in California, grew up with a Mexican mother, Swedish father. His father dies just a few months after he's born. So his mom goes through a lot of depression. She becomes unfortunately hooked on drugs. He ends up getting adopted by his father's cousin. It's him and his siblings. At the age of 14, 
The adoptive parents, they divorced. So now he goes back to his mom at the age of 14. She's recovered now, you know, drug addict. He unfortunately is in the streets, kind of getting into some gang stuff, fighting now, like just doing like off the cuff, you know, fighting in the streets, you know, for money. Um, gets into some problems, gets arrested as a juvenile, gets locked up for robbery, ends up getting released at the age of 17, comes out with a better vision, starts, you know, donating time to the community, volunteering, getting involved with the right things, ends up getting involved with an MMA gym um, as a training partner for someone, actually an boxing gym. That's sort of how he makes his way in. Um, the guy has come a long way. You look at his initial profile, where he's from, you know, being a Mexican-American guy, kind of being a statistic in the system. Now you look at where he's at. He's, he owns multiple gyms in California. He owns an MMA gym, a UFC gym, actually, with Michael Bisping in California. He owns his own MMA gym in Indio, California. Happily married man. Um, he's got an older brother, Steve, who's also in mixed martial arts. And he's got a reputation for being an amazing fighter. The guy's got the entertaining, you know, gene, the gift, right? He's got 10 fight night bonuses between UFC and WEC and eight post-fight awards for UFC bonuses, which is the most of anybody in that division. So the guy comes ready to have a good time. I imagine this fight is going to be a bloodbath at some point. Darren Elkins has a lot of scar tissue. He tends to bleed real quickly. Cub Swanson doesn't mind bleeding. He likes to bang. He's got the street fighter mentality. He's a BJJ black belt, Cub Swanson that is. His most notable opponents, he's fought G.J. Jikaze, Brian Ortega, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, Charles Oliveira, Jose Aldo, and Dustin Poirier. Notable guys, and his most notable wins, they were a while ago, but still very notable. Charles Oliveira, round one KO, 2012. Yeah, Dustin Poirier, by decision, 2013. Jeremy Jeremy Stevens by decision, 2014, and a win over Cron Gracie. At that time, Cron Gracie was 5-0. He was undefeated. He got that win in 2019. So, some positives here on Cub Swanson's game. Number one, he's got championship-level experience. He's been in there with some of the best guys um, in the division. Now, maybe it was a while ago, but the point is he's shared the octagon with some high-level guys. He's got a balanced attack. He can wrestle, he can grapple, he can strike. He's got nice sound boxing, nice kicking game. Solid stand-up defense. I do like that about Cub Swanson. So even though he can trade and you know he'll, he'll get in there, he'll bang with anybody, he'll brawl with anyone, he still practices some good level of stand-up defense, whereas other fighters are just trading and never you know having their guard up. He is a guy who he punches from his hips. He's got like a Floyd Mayweather karate side style kind of a stance. It's hard to kind of measure him. It's hard to hit him. He's very slippery. He uses great dirty boxing in the clinch. Elbows in the clinch, uppercuts. He knows how to use dirty boxing to hurt his opponents. As a matter of fact, when he hurt Pineda initially in their fight before he finished him, the, the initial hurt was because of inside elbows and in the clinch work. So very, very you know impressive work inside the clinch. Now, the negatives here in Cub Swanson. You know, he has been affected in fights by lower leg kicks. He did suffer an, a torn ACL a few years back. It seems like he's recovered from that. But he, his lead leg is there for the kicking. Now, does Darren Elkins do that a lot? Not really. He's more of a wrestler, yeah. But still, it's a weak part in Cub Swanson's game. Cub Swanson's an average wrestler. Yes, a black belt in GJ, you know, black belt in BJJ, but doesn't seem to use that very much. I, get, I think he's serviceable. He will be tested in that area of his game here. Damage on his face. So Cub Swanson, a lot like Darren Elkins, tends to be a bleeder. He tends to show damage quickly, tends to swell easily. This one's going to be interesting because both guys are going to show some damage. They're, these are very strong guys. They're proud fighters. They're not going to back away from a fight. They're going to stand and trade at points in the fight. And so I, I imagine some damage will be shown on both fighters' face. That should have also maybe a possible factor in the judges, right, how they see the fight. Um, he's open to counters. Um, I think I, I noticed that with both fighters. Both fighters, Cub Swanson as well, is open to counter punches when he's trading. Gets a little wild. Um, and that's the one thing I'm going to get to as well. He, he will stand and trade with anybody. That street fighter mentality can also be a bit of a... 
a negative, right? He's willing to open himself. He's willing to be careless. Now, one last thing on Cub Swanson. Very low finish rate. For a guy who's a grappler, a street fighter, you know, came up in gangs as a teenager, just the whole aura of this guy, you know. Um, he has what, been a decision five times in his last six wins. So only one finish in his last, you know, six fights that he's won. So um, not a great finish rate. Let's talk here about Darren Elkins. I, I want to mention something, too, between these two breakdowns of these two fighters here. When I first broke the fight down, I was very, very sure that I thought Cub Swanson would win. I had questions about Darren Elkins. You know, he's kind of taken a beating a few times. I, I wonder about the striking, you know. But when you start watching film on Elkins, it's hard not to acknowledge the fact that he's a very good grinder and grappler. Um, he wins fights by using his wrestling, and you, you can't underestimate those guys. There's no big age difference here. There's there's a very similar talent level. Could Darren Elkins just grind this damn thing out for three ugly rounds and win on the scorecards? I, I could see that happening at plus 160-ish on this money line here. He might be a live dog. Even though I'm picking Cub Swanson to win, I have a lot of respect for Elkins and what he might be able to do. So Elkins, let's talk about this guy here. Very impressive high school amateur background. So he came out of Indiana, multiple time state champion. He was 191 and nine. Yes, only nine losses in 200 matches in high school. Um, so phenomenal high school record. Did wrestle for two years in college. Didn't finish up in college, but did have some NCAA college wrestling experience. He made his UFC debut 11 years ago in 2010. His most notable opponents, Charles Oliveira, Jeremy Stevens, Alexander Volkanovsky, and Ryan Hall. The biggest wins of his career over Chad Skelly in 2016 by decision. He was a plus 145 dog going into that fight. And then Mursad Biktek. Um, Mursar Bektik in 2017, round three TKO over an undefeated 11-0 Bektik at the time, and he was a plus 500 underdog going into that fight. Some positives on Darren Elkins. He's got 24 total UFC fights with a 16-8 record in the UFC. A pretty high finish rate. That surprised me. For a wrestler, you're like, oh, he's going to wrestle, grind out a decision. He's finished four of his last five wins. A little impressive, right? He's coming off back-to-back -back wins. He's a durable fighter. Um, he's only been finished three times in his entire career. You're talking about a total of what? How many fights there with 30, 35, my math is off here, 35 total fights, you know, only been finished three times. So now some of the concerns I have about Darren Elkins, betting odds don't seem to be very consistent with him or accurate. What I mean by that is, for example, he was a minus 140 favorite against Landwehr. He lost that fight by decision. He was a minus 125 favorite against Hall. He lost by decision. He was a plus 110 underdog in Stevens. And he lost by decision. So he's getting like pick em numbers or slight favorite numbers in fights that he's losing. He's got a four-fight losing streak from 2018 to 2020, which he got past that losing streak. But the point is, he did go on a losing streak there for four fights over those two years. He cuts early and often. He's got a lot of scar tissue. You can see the profile picture here if you're looking at this video on YouTube. If you're not looking at this picture or this profile on YouTube and you're listening to this on the podcast, I can tell you that this guy, Darren Elkins, if you get a nice close profile picture of him, he's got a lot of damage, a lot of scar tissue to his face. I'm not sure... If the one eye, which is slightly more closed, just like permanently more closed, is because of the damage he's taking over his career in fighting. But his one eye, his right eye, which you can see here in the profile picture, it takes a lot of damage. He's open to jabs, and it shows a lot of damage. One or two punches to that eye, it'll cut and open up. So that's always a problem for him. He's very sloppy on the ground in transitions, which is interesting. He's a very good wrestler. He's, I mean, like, I mean, he's like a fish in water when it comes to wrestling. He's comfortable. He knows what he's doing. But he can get sloppy in transitions. And if a guy can submit him in the transition, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, is that Cub Swanson, who's a black belt in BJJ? I don't know that that's Cub Swanson. Cub's going to probably want to keep this fight in the feet. But I'm just saying, watching film on Darren Elkins, I'm surprised he's not been submitted more often because he gets very sloppy in his ground game transition. 
combined UFC record of his last two opponents that he has beaten. Okay, that's important. The last two people that Darren Elkins has beaten, their combined record in the UFC is two and five. So, you know, given that he has two wins in a row, it's not very high-level UFC guys he has just beaten. It's guys that are well below 500 in the UFC. The film links are in the description for the fights we watch in these two guys. Those films include Swanson versus Chikaze, Swanson versus Pineda, Swanson versus Gracie, Elkins versus Minor, Elkins versus Garoji, Elkins versus Landwehr. Take a look at those fights on your own. Kind of, you know, get your, formulate your own opinion here. But side by side, this fight is, should go towards Cub Swanson. He is the better striker. When you do compare them side by side, though, experience-wise, it's equal. IQ-wise, both very equal fighters. They've been there for a lot of cage fights. They have a lot of ring experience. I mean, cage experience. They're smart guys. They're cerebral fighters. Finishing-wise, you know, Elkins has the advantage in finishing, clearly. Um, but Cub Swanson's got a nice right hand as well. Um, he's got some power in his hands. But I do give the edge in finishing to Elkins. Boxing-wise, clear advantage for Cub Swanson. Grappling-wise, clear advantage for Elkins. I guess what I'm telling you is there's a lot of good reasons here to like Elton, Elkins. Now, the prop I like the most, which I'll talk more about the prop show at the end of the week, I like the fight not I'm a fight going the distance. Going the distance at minus 135. You got two guys who are very durable. You got Cub Swanson going to decision like his last five or six fights, except for the fight against Chikaze. That's right. He got kicked in the stomach. But the point is these guys are very durable, good chins, a lot of pride. I can see a bloodbath. I can see another fight of the night. Cub Swanson's known for that. They're swinging, they're treating, there's blood everywhere, and you have yourself a nice tight decision, which I hope goes towards Cub Swanson because I'm picking him. But if it ends up going towards Elkins, I am mad at him. Elkins is a, is a, is a, is a good old American tough fighter. He deserves it. Um, quality guy. Um, I love the wrestling background. You know, Shout out to all the wrestlers out there. It's wrestling season right now. My son's wrestling. Anyway, all that said, I'd like Elkins to win the fight. Good luck with this one, guys. If you disagree, leave some comments in the, in, the, in the bottom below. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you're on Elkins. Let me know if you like the wrestler or if you like Cub Swanson and just a nice, crisp boxing style that he brings to the table. Good luck. Next up, we've got a lightweight bout between the Brazilian veteran Diego Fiera and Matus Gamrat from Poland. Matus Gamrat goes by Gamer. He's 19-1 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, currently minus 180 on the money line. He's 31 years old, 5'10 in height with a 70.5-inch reach. He trains out of American top team. As for Diego Fiera, he's 17-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, plus 155 on the money line. He currently resides in McAllen, Texas, which is West Texas. We'll talk about that, even though he's from Brazil. 36 years old in 11 months. He's about to be 37, 5'9 in height with a 74-inch reach. He trades out of Fortis MMA, which is about nine hours from where he lives in Texas. So we'll talk about that again as we break down this film. So according to Tapology here, it looks like Gamrot is the favorite, getting 88% of the votes here compared to only 12% of the votes coming in for Fiera. I like Gamrot to win, but Diego Fiera should not be underestimated. The guy is a UFC veteran. He has shared the octagon with some top-level fighters. Looking at the striking numbers here, Fiera's landing 4.70 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.38. So pretty good ratio there. Gamrot's landing 4.10 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.09. So better ratio, but slightly more output there for Diego Fiera. For takedown offense, Fiera, who's very good at submissions um, and a pretty good wrestler, doesn't wrestle a lot, as you can see here, averaging just under one takedown per 15 minutes or one takedown per three-round fight. As for Matus Gamrot, much more active, one of the most active wrestlers you'll see in any weight division, averaging 5.35 takedowns per 15 minutes. He's also got 100% takedown defense, that's Gamrot, whereas Fiera's at 66%. And looking at some of the recent fights with Fiera, you'll see that he sometimes, especially later in the fights, round two, round three, against Benil Dariush, 
he got taken down pretty easily later in those fights and so that could be a problem here especially if it's a close close fight against a guy like Gamrot who has a high motor seems to have a very good gas tank goes for the takedowns throughout the entire fight from first round to last round so looking here at some notes on these two fighters um let's start with uh Gamrot first so born and raised in Poland he's a southpaw black belt in BJJ He's a former KSW featherweight and lightweight champion, moved to a boarding school as a teenager. So like middle school age, he moves to a boarding school specifically to train in freestyle wrestling. So he's been doing this wrestling thing for a while, seriously. Has like over 300 matches in the European scene, world championships, European championships, just all throughout his amateur up through you know his, uh, his young adult years. So wrestled a lot for years in Europe and has a lot of accolades. Also did some submission tournaments. Uh, grappling tournaments where he also did some you know did finished off with some championships also in, in that same area uh, pro debut was in 2012 and xfs fight night or night night of champions i'm sorry his ufc debut was in 2020 where he got a split decision loss um and actually you know you're looking back at that fight it's, it's it was a close fight um could have gone either way um he, he lost the fight but it was very close in his, in his ufc debut notable wins or his biggest wins Jeremy Stevens, round one Kimura in 2021. That's Gamrot's like coming out party. Jeremy Stevens, don't get me wrong, he's a veteran, but that was an opportunity for people to see like this Gamrot guy, he can wrestle, he's dangerous, he can submit people early and often. So, some positives here about Gamrot's game. Good finish rate, all right? He's finished his last two opponents, both two UFC fighters. <coughs> Excuse me. He's also had finishes in four of his last six wins. A very solid grappler, good, very good submission attacks, very good double leg takedowns, single leg takedowns, trips. He's very active in the wrestling department. He's 2-1 in the UFC, and of course that first fight where he got a split decision loss could have gone his way. Now most people in terms of the media, they actually did think he lost the fight. But right after the fight, I would encourage you to watch that actual film. The link's in the description. His opponent, Guram, does something I've never seen before. After the fight, he says, I lost the fight. It should have gone to Gamrat. I told Gamrot, he says in a, in a very strong Russian accent because he's Georgian, he's like, I told Gamrot, I lost fight, you won fight, this is bullshit, you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, Cormier, he's talking to, you know, uh, uh, DC after the fight, and he's giving this interview just being completely honest, like, I lost the fight, I shouldn't have won the fight. Now, having watched the fight, it's one of those things where it's like, both round two and three were clear, it's that round one that was like, ah, you know, it's just a close round one, it ends up coming around to... The deciding factors so tough to tell who won the fight but interesting little post-fight interview watch it if you like in the description you'll see the link there for the good on fight all right so amazing wrestler as we mentioned here very active fighter as well for gamrot third fight this year now some concerns i have about gamrot's game he did lose that ufc debut right and it, whatever we talked about being split decision but he was a minus 315 favorite going into that fight so a little scary there right um he's very dependent upon his wrestling so his stand-up is average okay so average boxing average boxing defense average striking average striking defense like if you kick him in the legs a lot doesn't like that so much again he'll go to his wrestling he'll go to his wrestling early and often he'll keep going back to that well but if he has a hard time getting a fighter down and that's a little bit of what happened against Guram because Guram's also a very good wrestler, wrestler from Georgia so he was able to defend a lot of takedowns and even when Gamrot took down Guram Guram got back up really quickly so that would be his kryptonite. If Gudon goes against a guy who's a really good takedown defender, gets up quickly, I don't know that Diego's that guy. Diego, I've seen him have some cardio issues recently. We'll talk more about that. But I, I think that for Gamrot, if he sticks to plan A, he should win. Plan A probably will not work in the top five, top ten, though, of the UFC because 
He's gonna fight. He's gonna fight guys who are gonna be a little more crafty. Can defend the takedowns. Now, as for Diego Fiera, all right, born and raised in Brazil, started BJJ at the age of 10 years old. Signed with the UFC in 2014, so he's a seven-year UFC veteran. He was actually working as a furniture salesman selling mattresses when he signed with the UFC. Happily married with children, he's a former Ele Legacy FC lightweight champion. Most notable opponents for him, Dustin Poirier. He lost to him round one, TKO lost 2015. But Neil Dariush, they fought twice. The last time was a split decision loss 2021. Now, looking at that fight, that's an interesting one. It says split decision loss to Benil Dariush. And so at first glance, you're like, that's a quality loss. We'll talk more about that when we get to that part of this breakdown here. Biggest wins of his career, Anthony Pettis. The last time that Anthony Pettis lost in the UFC in 2020, it was right here to Diego Fiera. Um, it was a rear naked choke, crank, weird position. Pettis looked like he tapped out pretty quickly. But Fiera, it's a reminder, Fiera is a good submission artist. He can get people in weird positions. If he gets on someone's back, he can submit them. A win over Jared Gordon, round one, TKO, 2018, and over Olivier Mercier in 2016 via decision. Those are his biggest wins of his career. Some positives here about Diego Fiera. Active fighter. Third fight this year, so even though he's, what, turning about to be 37 years old, the dude is still very active. He's got two wins over Norman Park. Those wins were in KSW. Now, he is a former UFC fighter, so again, he's got some wins over UFC guys or guys who fought in the UFC. Decent finisher. He's got three. He's had three finishes in his last five wins. Uh, quality loss against Benil Dariush. That's the fight. Let's talk about it, okay? Because when you watch the fight on film, to me, it appears as if Benil Dariush clearly won two of the three rounds. Maybe even all three rounds. It doesn't seem to be that close. But when you get to the judges' scorecards, one of the judges, for some reason, gives round one to Diego Fiera. There's no way he won round one. Round one clearly should have gone to Benil Dariush. And round two clearly to Benil Dariush. Round three was close. Benil, I think, got two takedowns in round three. It was a close round. But all three judges gave round three to Fiera. With that said, that's fine. It still should have been easily two rounds to one. It wasn't. It goes to split decision. I'm telling you right now, if you watch that film, the link's in the description, it shouldn't have been a split decision. So in this case here, it's a quality loss from the standpoint that he did go three rounds. His cardio checked out much better than his prior fight. Okay, his prior fight before that, he fought against, um, give me a second here, excuse me. He fought against Gillespie. And in that fight, that was bad because against Gillespie, that was in 2021, this year, he starts off, that's actually, I'm sorry, the fight afterwards, right? Because the Dariush fight was before this. So his most recent fight against Gillespie, he's winning that fight. He's got Gillespie in tough positions round one. Round two comes out, hits a wall. Gas, gas tank isn't there. He came into that fight a little overweight, gets overwhelmed. Gillespie gets a submission. Not a submission, ground and pound. And it's more of a ground and pound that just basically Ferreira gave up. He just had enough, covered up, and that was it. So didn't look great in that situation there. Um, and against Benio Dariush, I thought he just simply got out-wrestled. I thought he got overwhelmed, and I thought, you know, it wasn't even a close split decision. But anyway, back to our, our notes here. Um, some concerns I have about Vieira. He was overweight his last fight. He's on a two-fight losing streak. He ran out of gas in his last fight. His last few wins are against guys that are subpar fighters. So, for example, he beat Anthony Pettis on the way out of the UFC. Um, he beat guys like Kyle Nelson, Kabilov. Tasimov, like not very well-known fighters, and so guys that are sort of middling, lower level, doesn't have a quality win here recently, okay? Um, anything else here on Pereira? So, he lives in West Texas, right? This is a little weird factoid in this dude, right? So he lives in West Texas, nine hours from Fortis MMA. And so what he'll do is he'll drive out nine hours, go to town, down where Fortis MMA is located, train for a few days, whatever, get his, you know, workouts in, get back in his car and then drive back home 
It's a very odd setup. Don't love it. Um, he's close to the Mexican border, so maybe he just likes that part of Texas. West Texas is like its own country anyway. Um, but all that said, a weird setup. Now, is this dated? Has he changed his setup since the last time that I heard this? Maybe he did. But just not, doesn't seem like the greatest training setup. It could be a reason why maybe his cardio wasn't so great there when he fought Gillespie earlier this year. So, all that said, when you line these guys up side by side, experience-wise, I give an edge to Ferreira because he has fought some guys like Dustin Poirier. He has been in there with some guys that are well-known. Gamrot, 19-1, awesome record, fought the same, about, about the same amount of fights, but just hasn't fought as many you know, tough or high-level opponents. But close experience-wise. IQ-wise, I give an edge to Gamrot for two things, two reasons. One, hasn't been overweight. Seems to have his cardio in check, whereas Fiera got some questions there. Cardio-wise, I give an edge to Gamrot. Finishing-wise, I also give an edge to Gamrot, both submission-wise and ground and pound-wise. If he gets a guy to the ground and he wears the hell out of them, they basically just give up. He doesn't hurt them. He just wears them down. You've seen it happen to Fiera recently. I can see it happen again here. Boxing-wise, neither guy is elite, but they're not bad at boxing. So they throw some jabs. They throw some combinations. Maybe Fiera at times looks a little quicker. But Gamrat will do just enough on his feet. You know, he's not a bad boxer. He's actually pretty good for, especially for a former wrestler, right? Grappling-wise, they're pretty much dead even because the best version of Fiera, I'll say this, the best version of Fiera is dangerous all around. Guys have good submission skills. He can give Gamrat a hard time. He can defend some takedowns, wear him out. The best version of Fiera could give anybody a problem. The best version of Matisse Gamrat can also give anybody a problem. They're both very good grapplers in Russia. So from that standpoint, very even. Now, distance... I think the fight does not go the distance. I think Gamrot wears him out, gets a TKO at some point, or a submission. Not sure which one. I think he grinds up the 37 or 36, about to 37-year-old Fiera. Young guy from, Polish comes, from Poland comes in here on the main card, makes a statement win, submission or TKO. Inside the distance for Gamrot is plus 200 as a prop, and the fight just not going the distance is plus 100. I don't think it goes a decision. I don't think Fiera right now is on top of it. I don't think he's training as seriously. I think you got a, a young whippersnapper here in Matus Gamrot. He comes in here, finishes the fight, sets the distance. So that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Please do not forget to like and subscribe. Next up, we got a bantamweight bout between Rafael Assunso, the Brazilian veteran, and Ricky Simone, the United States. Simone's 18-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, minus 280 in the current money line. He hails out of Vancouver, Washington. 29 years old, 5'6 in height with 70-inch reach. He trains out of American top team in Portland. As for Assunso, he's 27-8 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights, plus 225 in the money line. He hails out of Alfreda, Georgia, though he was born in Brazil. 39 years old, 5'5 in height with a 66.5-inch reach. He trains out of Asinsa Mixed Martial Arts, and he also has done some training camps out of ATT, though I'm not sure if he's doing that for this particular fight. According to public vote here, Simone is the favorite, getting 82% of the votes here on Tapology. I do like Simone to win the fight. We'll break it down here. I'll try to explain to you why I like him to win. But I've got to acknowledge here that 39-year-old veteran Asunso is a guy you can't take lightly. Um, he has some very impressive wins on his resume. We're going to talk a little bit about that. All right, so striking numbers here. Asunso is landing 3.26 strikes per minute, absorbing, absorbing 2.33, so pretty good ratio. Simone's landing 3.08 strikes per minute, but absorbing 3.13, so not great in the fact that he's absorbing a little bit more than he's dishing out. As for Asunso, he's landing 1.48 takedowns per 15 minutes, or a takedown and a half per three-round fight. This is a three-round fight. He's defending at 80% rate, very good defense. Simone's defending at a 72% rate, so comparable. 
but his takedown offense, got to look at that. They're averaging just about seven takedowns per 15 minutes or seven takedowns per three-round fight. Now, granted, Asunso is going to be the shorter fighter here, clearly, at 5'5", maybe even shorter than that. He looks to me more like 5'4 when you're watching him on film. But that leverage, at least benefit for him, should help him defend some of the takedowns. What will eventually give over time, I believe, is that Simone has a very high motor, um, doesn't run out of gas. Asunso is 39 years old, not getting younger here. At some point, maybe late round two, round three, I see Simone being more successful with the takedowns than he would be earlier in the fight. So we'll see how that pans out. But I believe at some point, Simone gets the fight to the ground. That's where he likes to work. That's where he likes to operate. Some notes here in the fighters. Let's talk here about Asunso first. So, okay, the veteran. Mentioned that he was born in Brazil, but he was raised in the United States pretty much his entire life. He's got some brothers that are also involved with mixed martial arts. He's a father. He fought in WEC prior to UFC. 16 total UFC fights. Some of the most notable wins on his resume. Alderman Sterling by split decision in 2017. So that was four years ago. Rob Font, three years ago by decision. Pedro Munoz back in 2014. So that was seven years ago by decision. TJ Dillashaw by split decision in 2013. Now, they did have a rematch, and Dillashaw beat him by decision. He's also got Jorge Masvidal on his resume, 2005, way back in the day, 16 years ago. Some other notable fights that he lost against Cody Garbrandt, round two, and TKO in round two in 2020, so just about a year ago. Corey Sanhagen, two years ago by decision. And Marlon Marias, in, in two years ago, in round one by a sub. Now, notably, that fight was a rematch. He had defeated Marias. Four years ago, by split decision in 2017, it's, it's interesting, when you look at his topology, he had some really favorable split decision wins, put it that way. All right, so some positives here I like about the veteran fighter. He is 11-5 overall in the UFC. That's a heck of a record. A lot of guys wish they had that kind of winning percentage in the UFC. He has massive UFC level, high-level experience. So he's been there with some of the top guys. I mean, I mentioned some of those names, obviously, right? Font, Munoz, Dillashaw, Sterling, Masvidal, Garbrandt, Sanhagen, Marias. He's fought some quality guys, okay? He should be pretty motivated to win, right? He's coming off of a three-fight losing streak here, so I know he's got to be thinking, you know, it's now or never, 39 years old. He's approaching his expiration date in terms of fighting, you know, opportunities. So I'm sure he's motivated. He has eight career losses, and all of those losses are against guys that fought at one point in the UFC or it was against a guy who was fighting against him in the UFC. So eight quality losses over the course of his career. Now, some concerns I have here with Asunso. Signs of slowing down his last few fights, okay? So he's on a three-fight losing streak. All right, it happens, right? He's never had a three-fight losing streak in his entire career. A matter of fact, you got to go back way, way back to 2010 where he had back-to-back -back losses, and it was against decent fighters, against Diego Nunes and U Uriah Faber, so both UFC-level guys. That was a back-to-back -back loss 2010, so that was what, 11 years ago, last time that he had back-to-back -back losses. Now he's on a three-fight losing streak, okay? So kind of something to, you know, at least consider. Now, and considering also this now, in the 17 years he fought, right, 35 total fights. This is the first time he's had three fights in a row he's lost. So, again, it just gives you a concept of, like, how positive of a winning record this guy has had over the course of his career. Now, all of a sudden, he's on some hard times here. Now, he has been finished also in two of his last three fights. Okay, that's not also a great thing to consider. Now, imagine this. He's had four times he's been finished his entire career. Two of those three finishes just happened, or two of those finishes just happened over his last three fights. And this is a guy, again, who's had fought a lot of fights, all right? So, one-year layoff between the last two fights. Don't love that, okay? He's getting older. Um, he used to fight about twice a year. When you look at his topology, you notice two fights a year, two fights a year. And then now the last few years, it's one fight a year, you know, about to be one fight every other year. Very low finish rate in his last few, few, few fights, okay? So, six of, his six of his last seven wins 
have been by decision. And looking at his topology, there's a lot of split decision wins there. He's going to be at a reach and height disadvantage in this fight. I think it's more than you can imagine. I think the, I think when you watch the film, you notice he's a smaller fighter. Like watch against Cody Garbrandt. Cody Garbrandt's so much longer than him, so much taller than him. I'm not saying Cody is the same size here as Ricky Simone, but Simone's going to have the reach advantage and the height advantage. There's also the age factor. He's 39, approaching in the next eight months or so, 40. Um, at this weight class, that's not really your prime years. I think we're seeing um, a decline. His last loss against Cody Garbrandt, that links in the description. Wow, that is a tough knockout to watch and not think, wow, maybe it's time to hang it up. He gets knocked out right at the, right at the bell, basically, round two. It's flush. It's clean. It's quick. It's a really nice counter punch by Cody Garbrandt. But the kind of knockout you just got to ask yourself, like, one more knockout like that, maybe it's time to hang it up. So it's been looking a little tough for him lately. I think the age is becoming a factor. I think he's slowing down a little bit. Now, as for Ricky Simone, born in Oregon, um, comes from a close fit, close knit, excuse me, close fit, close knit Mexican family of immigrants. He's got three brothers. Um, they all have these upper back tattoos that match the tattoo he has. So very close family, a lot of bonding there. Um, his cousin is Vince Morales, so first cousin, who's also a UFC fighter. He started wrestling at the age of nine years old, um, was pretty successful in high school wrestling, wanted to wrestle in, in college, but not sure what happened. There's sort of like a dead end there in terms of his story. I'm not sure if it was an academic issue or he decided to just pursue some other stuff. He was 3-0 as an amateur. Um, he used to coach middle school wrestling. I'm not sure why he stopped, but again, he was involved you know, with wrestling and teaching wrestling. So he's been around the sport for a while, both as a kid wrestling, teaching wrestling. He's the former Legacy Fighting Alliance Bantamweight champion. His most notable opponents to date Rob Font, who he lost to by decision. Anderson Dos Santos, who choked, choked him out via RNC or rear naked choke um, back when they fought. His biggest wins of his career. He beat Marab Devashvili, who's actually doing pretty well right now. He beat him by a round three sub just three years ago, 2018. He's also got a win over Ronnie Yaya in 2019. Now, Yaya, I know he's aging. That was still two years ago. And Yaya looked pretty good recently. He just picked up a win. So those are his two biggest wins. The things I like the most about Simone, he's a very durable fighter. He's been finished only twice in his career, and he could clearly take a punch. So it's not going to be a one-punch knockout type of guy. Well, anyone can get knocked out by one punch. But the point is, he's a kind of guy where he could take some damage. He's very durable. Um, he's got some heart. Um, he pushes the pace, tends to own the center of the octagon. I like fighters who push the pace because at the very least, if it's a close fight, that guy should get the edge on the scorecards, right? He changes levels. Ultimate wrestler where he's changing levels, bending, fainting. Um, he does attack. He obviously wrestles almost seven takedowns per, per uh, fight. So he's going to change levels, which makes it harder for the opponent to adjust. Um, his favorite, um, I think, thing to do is basically set up his takedowns with a few outside punches. Come on in, push the pace. And at that point, he's got his opponent wondering, should I defend takedowns? Should I defend these shots up top? That changing of levels over the course of three rounds is exhausting for the opponent. That's kind of his favorite way of attacking. All right, so um, he was a favorite now heading into his last three wins. And look at these money lines here. He was a minus 245 favorite against Kelleher, a minus 445 favorite against Pirello, and a minus 160 favorite against Bork. Now, he won all of those fights. Two were by decision. He did beat Pirello pretty convincingly. It was a round two submission with the minus 45 favorite. You like to see that, but... Been a favorite the last three fights, and he's cashed out as a favorite and won. So kind of like that from a confidence standpoint as he comes in here as a favorite at minus 280. So all three of his losses are against quality opponents. He lost against Rob Font via decision 2019, Uriah Faber via TKO 2019, and Anderson Dos Santos by rear naked, cho rear naked choke excuse me, 2016. So all three of his losses are quiet losses. My concerns with Simone, and I don't have a lot of them, low finish rate. Okay, so of his last five wins, 
Four of them had been by decision. Only one finish. He was a minus 370 favorite when he lost to Uriah Faber 46 seconds round one by a TKO in 2019. I don't like that. Coming in as a huge favorite and getting knocked out and clobbered. His boxing is average. It's it's improving. Um, it's not bad, especially for a guy who's a wrestling, you know, got a wrestling base. base excuse me, but it could have some improvement. Let's put it that way. Um, the fights we watched for this breakdown were Simone versus Kelleher, Simone versus Gatano, Asunso versus Garbrandt, Asunso versus Sanhagen. Those four links for those fights are all in the description. Now, looking at some more comparisons of these two fighters here, uh, Simone. All right, so for experience, I give an edge to Asunso, obviously, because he's fought, what, 35 total fights compared to 21 total fights for Simone. He's been there a little bit longer, had more UFC fights, on and on and on. Now, in terms of IQ, they're similar. I don't think Simone's a dumb fighter at all. Yes, less experienced, but I think he's a smart fighter. I think he's a little younger, a little more spry. Um, so fighter IQ level, about the same. Cardio-wise, I give an edge to Simone. Again, the younger fighter, he has shown that he could push the pace for all three rounds. At the end of round three, he's pursuing takedowns the same way he does in round one. So I like that a lot about him. For Rafael Asunco, or Sunso, I'm sorry, it's just an age factor here. I don't imagine he's going to have the gas tank to keep up with a guy who's 10 years his junior. For finishing ability, they're both, ah, right now, not great finishers. I do see Simone having a chance to finish the fight here. So maybe he gets a chance to finish the older fighter. But if it goes a distance, I'm not surprised. Boxing-wise, I give a slight edge to Simone here just because he's going to have a reach advantage. But it's not like his technique is amazing. Asunso, his technique is not amazing either. This fight ends up on the ground. We're not going to see much boxing. Grappling-wise, I give an edge to Simone. He's the better wrestler. He's stronger. He's younger. Um, now, for a prop to consider here, I like inside the distance at plus 110. I don't think the fight goes the distance here. I think at some point, Simone wears on Asunso. He gets him out of there somehow. I'm not sure if it's submission or by TKO. It overwhelms him. But I think he finishes the guy. Now, remember, 39-year-old fighter who's been finished two of his last three losses. Um, and that's a unique side of his, his career. Hasn't been finished usually until the end, until the last few fights. So I think it's going to happen here as well. Now, the fight just ending inside the distance with Simone winning is plus 180. So those are two props to consider. Inside the distance for Simone at plus 180, where the fight just does not go the distance in any way, shape, or form, which means that Asunso, maybe Asunso cracks Simone somehow and shocks, you know, shocks some people here and the underdog wins. You still cash out there. So anyway, I like Simone to win the fight. He'll be one of my more confident plays here on the main card. I do like him to win. I think the age disparity is definitely a factor. Um, he trades at a very good gym there at ATT Portland. He's approaching the prime years of his career. He's had some really quality wins, some good losses. I think he's ready to take the step up here. This is a big fight for him. I like some of Next up, we have a women's strawweight bout. It's actually the only women's fight in the main card between Amanda Lemos from Brazil and Angela Overkill Hill from the United States. Hills 13 and 10 overall, 2 and 3 in her last 5 fights, plus 245 on the money line. She hails from New York City, New York, 36 years old in 11 months, so she'll be 37 years old here soon. 5 foot 3 in height with a 64 and a half inch reach. She's out of Alliance MMA. As for Amanda Lemos, she's I'm sorry, Lemos, she's 10 1 and 1 overall, 4 and 1 in her last 5 fights, minus 310 on the money line. She's from Pada, Brazil, 34 years old, 5 foot 4 in height with a 65 inch reach. She's out of Marajo Brothers team. Now according to Tapology, Looks like most of the votes are coming in for Lemos, with 87% of the votes exactly coming in for Lemos, and 13% of the votes coming in for Hill. I like Lemos to win. I think she's actually maybe my most favorite pick on the entire card. I'm backing the truck up there for at least three to four units on Lemos straight up. I feel like she's by far the better fighter. Get this while you can, because if it closes out at minus 400 to minus 500 to minus 600, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, when you watch film these two fighters, to me, it's clear and obvious. Lemos is by far the harder 
crisper striker. She's probably going to end this fight within the distance. There's some prop bets we could talk about as well. So looking at the striking numbers here for Lemos, landing 6.32 strikes per minute, absorbing 5.38. Nice ratio there. For Angela Hill, not so bad either. 5.71 strike per minute in her output and absorbing 5.25. So both of them are in the positive for their striking output versus input. For takedown offense, Amanda's landing 1.95 takedowns per 15 minutes. So just about two takedowns per three-round fight compared to Angela Hill, who's landing just about half a takedown per three-round fight. So in that department, you're going to see a lot more activity from Lemos if it were to go two or three rounds. For takedown, for takedown defense, Amanda Lemos is defending a takedown at 100% rate, 77% rate for Angela Hill. Now, looking at the notes on the two fighters here, starting with Amanda Lemos. She was born and raised in Brazil, started fighting in the jungle fight uh, scene, the regional scene in Brazil. She's the former jungle fight bantamweight champion. Started her career 6-0-1 before her first loss, which was her UFC debut against Leslie Smith. And it was actually a round two TKO. Leslie Smith's a pretty decent fighter, but it looked like obviously for that step up in competition, Lemos wasn't ready for it, right? She got five total UFC fights. Her most notable opponents, well, actually notable opponent between the two of them. They both fought against Liviana, Liviana Souza. Okay, now for Angela Hill, she beat Souza by split decision in 2016. When Lemos fought Souza this past year, she beat Souza round one TKO. So it's MMA math, yes, but kind of a comparison there. When Lemos fought Souza, she just put the work on her ass and got her out of there quickly. When Souza fought Hill, three round fight, split decision. Now, some positives here I like on Loma. Very active fighter, third fight this year. She's 4 1 in the UFC, four fight winning streak, three finishes in her four fights, 115 pounder, finishing three of her four, last four wins. High finish rate, six finishes in her last 10. Actually, I'm sorry, six finishes total in her career of her 10 wins. Um, and it's especially, again, a high rate for a 115-pound female division, right? Her knockout over Ruiz, which was 35 seconds in round one, which is earlier this year, was the second fastest finish in UFC strawweight history. So the girl is packing some heat. Very hard striker. She has an intimidating stance. Like, her stance is like a Muay Thai, um, very heavy in the front leg. She kind of, like, walks her opponent down slowly very intimidating um you notice it on film right away it's just a very intimidating stance when she fought against Souza, Souza looked really scared the fight just got started and Souza was like backing up like oh no this woman's coming at me um the only thing i could think of is negatives for amanda lemos is that she got knocked out by lacey smith in her debut 2017 four years ago and she last experience right she's got 12 total fights and she's 34 years old on the other side you got 37 year old hill with 23 total fights right so a little bit of a late start there for Lemo. She'd like to see her start picking it up, but it seems like she's got it. I, I think she's got it. I think she's got like a championship running her. That's how highly I think of Lemos. Now, looking at Angela Hill, she has a bachelor's degree from Cooper Union School of Art. She was actually working as an animator before she got into mixed martial arts. She went pro 2014. Uh, a few fights into her career, she gets the opportunity to fight the ultimate fighter. Um, she loses that fight, then gets a call up to fight the UFC, loses back-to-back -back fights against like Rose Namajunas and uh, Tisha Torres, just gets a bad break, gets cut by the UFC, goes to Invicta, gets back on a winning way, uh, winning run, then comes back to the UFC um, and has been there now for years. She's got almost 20 total UFC fights between UFC and Ultimate Fighter. Her most notable opponents, Tisha Torres, twice, 2021 and 2015, both times she lost by decision. Carla Esparza. She lost round one rear naked choke 2014. Rose Namajunas, she lost round one rear naked choke 2015. Jessica Andrade, 2017 decision loss. Her biggest wins of her career are over Marina, Marina Moroza, or Moroz, I'm sorry, 2018, and Ashley Yoder, 2021. Those are her two biggest wins, which are not big time names, but still names in the division nonetheless. 
some positives here on Angela Hill's fighting style. Very athletic fighter. I mean, if you just look at her, look at the way she's built. She's very athletic. Now, she's always, does she always put it to use? Maybe not so much, but she's in good shape, very athletic. Excellent UFC experience, almost 20 total UFC fights. She does some commentating for ESPN or Mixed Martial Arts or UFC. I'm not sure which show she's done. I've seen her do some commentating, which is a good sign. Usually, it's a sign that they're cerebral. They could talk. They're well-spoken. they got a brain on their shoulders. I mentioned she has a bachelor's degree. So when she's done fighting, maybe she could do something else with her life and not be crazy and just have some CTE or whatever else, right? So um, third fight this year. Very active. You do like that as well. For an older fighter, that's a good sign. Now... Um, yeah, I do got to mention she is turning 37, right? So it is <laughs> she's kind of getting at the tail end here of her career. Now, some concerns I have on Angela Hill. She's 13 and 10 overall. I mean, you got to mention the obvious there. Her record is basically a 500 record after 23 total fights. She's lost six of her last 11 fights. So in her last 11 fights, she's actually below 500. She's got a below average grappling and wrestling game. Will that matter in this fight? I think only if the fight goes to round two or round three will it matter. I think the fight ends pretty quickly. I think that fight ends under one and a half rounds. Lamos just hits her with too many hard shots. Angela Hill is not going to be hurt so much as the fact she's going to just be getting hurt. and Like, I've had enough of here. I'm going to ball up and finish, you know, get, get out of here, right? So if it were to get to a grappling or wrestling match of some kind, I think Lamos would have a big advantage here. It shouldn't be a factor, but it's a part of Angela Hill's game I don't love. She's got a low finish rate. Only five total finishes for Angela Hill in her 23 total fights. So, clearly she's not a big finisher. She's had a few finishes even recently. I don't see her finishing Lamos here. She's lost three of her last four fights. Kind of a bit of a rough stretch, all right? And so, her last win was against Ashley Yoder. Ashley Yoder is 8-8 eight and eight and barely holding on to her UFC contract. So, basically, in her last four fights, she has one win, three losses. That one win was against a person who's barely holding on to their contract. So, the film that we looked at in these two fighters to break down this film... We looked at Lemos versus Ruiz, Lemos versus Souza, Hill versus Torres, and Hill versus Yoder. Those four fight links are in the description to look at those fights if you want to on your own. Look at Lemos. <laughs> if you watch Lemos, it's going to pop out to you. This woman is fighting on a different level right now, a much higher level, I believe, than Angela Hill. Just some comparisons on the fighters side by side. Experience-wise, I give an edge to Hill. IQ-wise, I give a slight edge to Lemos. She's just such a dangerous boxer right now. Just, you know, far and away above where Hill is at. Cardio-wise, they're both in good shape. I don't think it's going to matter. The fight probably doesn't get out of round two, um, but they're both in good shape. Finishing-wise, huge edge for, edge for Lamos. Lamos is much more of a finisher, much harder of a striker. Just intimidating. He's going to push a tempo. Um, her last few fights, you see it. She's finishing fights early at 115 pounds. Um, Boxing-wise, Lamos has the power, the speed, hitting harder. Grappling-wise... I give a slight advantage to Lamos. I don't think it's going to be a factor. Now, for the props I like the most for this fight, the fight not going the distance is plus 138, and TKO by a man, Lamos is plus 300. i got to sprinkle that maybe with a quarter unit or half a unit, but I'm taking something on this. I like Lamos straight up at minus 310. I'm going to take three to four units on that. I'm going to parlay her way too much. I hope she doesn't let me down. Amanda Lamos all night, all day. I love her in this spot. i got to take her as much as I can. Hopefully, I don't lose my ass on this and get my ass shaven. But anyway, that's the breakdown, guys, in this fight. Please, if you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And good luck with this one if you guys will be betting on this fight. Next up, we've got the co-main event for UFC Vegas 45. It's a welterweight bout between two American fighters, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Bilal, remember the name, Muhammad. Muhammad's 19-3 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Plus 205 on the money line. He hails from Chicago, Illinois. 33 years old. 5'11 in height with 71 inch reach. He trains out of Rufus Sport MMA Academy. 
As for Wonderboy, he's 16-5-1 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Minus 265 on the money line. He's 38 years old in 10 months, so about to be 39. Six foot in height with 75 inch reach. He's out of Upstate Karate and TriStar Gym. According to public vote here, it looks like Thompson is the favorite, getting 85% of the votes compared to 15% coming in for Muhammad. I do like Thompson to win the fight. I think the veteran savvy, the unique karate style uh, will be just enough to win the fight, probably on the scorecards. You know, for Muhammad, he's a decent fighter. He's got a good record, but there's some holes in his game. We're going to talk about it as we break down this film. For Thompson, he's uh, going to be a little bit taller, have a little bit more reach. That should also play into his game plan, four-inch reach advantage. He likes to stand in more of a side stance, use kicking, side kicks, um, kicks to the body, kicks all over. Um, holds his hands kind of low, very unique karate style, has a very decorated background in kickboxing, which we'll talk about. So for T Stephen Thompson's striking numbers, he's landing 4.06 strikes per minute per minute, absorbing 2.75 strikes per minute. For Bilal Muhammad, landing 4.61 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.8. So both fighters, positive in a striking output, around four strikes per minute, so very similar in their output. For takedown offense, for Thompson, not much in a takedown department. Again, he's a karate-style kickboxing fighter, so just 0.3 takedowns per 15 minutes, or just a third of a takedown per full fight. For Bilal Muhammad, he's landing 1.8 takedowns per 15 minutes, Makes sense. It's about two takedowns per fight. He's got a wrestling background, wrestled in high school. He's defending at a 91% rate. That's Bilal Muhammad. And for Stephen Thompson, defending takedowns at a 73% rate. So both guys are defending takedowns at a pretty high number. Now, looking here at some notes on the fighters. Let's talk here about Bilal Muhammad first. So, raised in Chicago, his parents are actually from Palestine. He's been outspoken in support of his native country. He wrestled in high school. Went to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where he actually graduated uh, he's went, he went pro in 2012, so he'd been a pro for about nine years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lost his UFC debut to Alan Joban back in 2016 via decision. His notable opponents and wins, um, he fought Leon Edwards, had the eye poke situation, which most people remember, had a decision win over Diego Lima, had a split decision win over Tim Means, and had a decision win over Randy Brown. He's 4-0 in Titan FC and Bellator, which was prior to joining UFC. Three quality losses, only three losses in his career, that was against Jeff Neal by decision, Vincente Luque, TKO of round one, and Alan Joban by decision 2016. So all at least UFC level fighters. He's a balanced fighter. He doesn't do anything amazing, but he doesn't do anything too bad. And so he's going to be in most of his fights. You know, I think it comes down to cardio, unique positions, control time for him. Um, he's going to need he's going to need a moment or two in a round to be able to win the round. I think Stephen Thompson's fighting style, which is a little more flashy, the leg kicks, spinning kicks, that lends to having some more of those moments. Whereas Bilal Muhammad's a little bit more of a just average. Like I said, average at everything, and that's not necessarily a knock on him. just doesn't do anything amazing. Some concerns I have in Bilal Muhammad's game, um, like I just mentioned, doesn't do anything great. Like doesn't do amazing in submissions. Doesn't do amazing with his boxing or striking or have a high finish rate. Um, I think in this fight, he's going to be a step slower. He's going to have a quickness disadvantage here. But Steven Thompson, who even though he's older, Thompson by six years, is a quick fighter. He's got, you know, he's very athletic. He's got that, like, that like kung fu ninja, you know, shit with the whole karate deal, you know? So if you ever watch him fight on film, and I encourage you to watch his film if you haven't, just a very unique guy, kind of slippery, hard to hit. Now, in his last fight against Gilbert Burns, it didn't work because Gilbert Burns wrestled him to the ground. And people who like Bilal Muhammad in this fight are going to say, well, that's what Bilal's going to do. He's averaging two takedowns per 15 minutes. He can get around, maybe two rounds, wrestle him, hold position control. 
I don't think so. Steven Thompson's not that easy to take down. Um, Gilbert Burns, I believe, is a much better wrestler here than Bilal Muhammad in this in this in this point in his career for Bilal. So I don't see it being something where it's going to happen for two rounds. Maybe a part of one round, but not two of the three rounds. Um, one more thing on Bilal Muhammad. So his low finish rate. He has eight of his la his last eight wins, seven of those by decision. So only one finish in his last eight wins. Um, so just kind of tells you right now he's again wrestling control points position control punching you know that's his path to victory and probably the same thing for steven thompson so not necessarily it's a knock it's just sort of a style now for steven thompson from south carolina came up in the kickboxing karate game started kickboxing at 15 years old made his pro debut in kickboxing that is in 1999 went 13-0 in kickboxing then made his mma debut in 2010 got a win there made his mma debut in ufc 2012 Got a win, first round knockout via head kick. Very exciting. He holds several black belts in various disciplines. Head instructor at Upstate Karate. His father's actually his trainer and manager, and that's still to this day. His sister's married to Carlos Machado. Now, Carlos Machado was not like big in the MMA or UFC game, but he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. And his brother is married to Chris Weidman's sister. So like family of fighters, kept it all in the family. Dad's his manager, trainer. Um, I'm sure they get together for some UFC parties in, in the uh, Thompson household. His most notable opponents, he did fight Tyrone Woodley twice. First time it was a draw, so then a rematch, he lost by decision. That was back in 2017. He fought Gilbert Burns this past, this earlier this year, lost by decision. He did fight Anthony Pettis, lost round two TKO 2019. Um, and he also had a decision loss against Darren Till 2018. The biggest wins of his career. Jorge Masvidal. Why Jorge Masvidal's name just keeps showing up on tapology lists of people's like prior wins. Anyway, back in 2017, he beat Jorge Masvidal by decision. He's also got a win over Vincente Luque in 2019, two years ago, and Luque is a pretty good fighter. And way back in 2014, he beat Robert Whitaker. Some positives on Steven Thompson. He's got a unique karate fighting style. It's hard to adjust, hard to get someone in your camp to be able to imitate that and be able to you know you know, spar with so he's got a unique style which takes for his opponents it's hard for his opponents to adjust to bottom line um one thing i will say that concerns me a little bit about thompson got a low finish rate as well as muhammad so he's going to the scorecards he's depending upon the judges thinking that those flashy leg kicks the punches um they added up they were in his favor he's not a position control guy not a wrestler not a grappler not a ton of power um He's got a decision in eight of his last nine fights. So again, you know, not displaying power. Tends to come up short against contenders. So not like elite level guys. Forget about the championship level guys. I'm talking guys like Tyron Woodley, Darren Till, Gilbert Burns. So guys that are top contenders, not championship guys. He comes up short, loses by decision, goes a distance, shows durability. So, you know, is Bilal Muhammad a top contender? I don't think so. I think in this fight here... The money line is correct at minus 265 for team Steven Thompson. I'm taking him straight up probably more as a parlay piece, as a top ticket parlay piece, not as a straight up bet, actually, because I don't want to put minus 265 to make 100 bucks. So parlay piece for him. I think if you're going to look as a prop bet for this fight, I like the fight going the distance. Uh, it's kind of I'm like I'm torn on that one. I think it does go the distance. I don't even know what that number is. I haven't looked it up, but the fight probably goes a the distance. These guys are pretty durable. Good matchup. You know, for Bilal Muhammad, like, you know, he's got a 19-3 record. It's very impressive. Good test for him. I would be a little surprised, though, if he beats the veteran. I think Steven Thompson gets the win here. 
he goes on moves on to 17 and 5 and 1 and look how many more fights does Stephen thompson have i don't know um he's kind of at the end of his reign um you know could Bilal muhammad just come in here and the age difference be a factor too you know if you like Bilal muhammad please comment below let me know um i like thompson to win the fight that's the breakdown guys good luck with this guys And we are up to the main event for UFC Vegas 45. It's a heavyweight clash between two American fighters, Derek Lewis from Houston, Texas, and Chris Dalkus from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dalkus is 12-3 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights, currently on a five-fight winning streak, minus 140 in the money line. He's 32 years old, 6'3 in height with 76-inch reach. He's out of Martinez BJJ. As for the Black Beast, Derek Lewis, he's 25-8 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, coming off of a loss against Cyril Ghosn. He's plus 120 in the money line. He's 36 years old in 10 months, so about to be 37. Six foot three in height, the same height as his opponent. But a three-inch reach advantage here for Derek Lewis with a 79-inch reach compared to 76-inch reach for Chris Dalkis. Now, Derek Lewis is out of Silverback Fight Club. According to Tapology, the public votes are just about down the middle here with Lewis getting slightly more votes at 55% compared to 45% for De Chris Dalkis. Now, according to the striking numbers here, Lewis is landing 2.49 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.48, so pretty much equal output to input. Dalkis now landing 9 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.4. So a high volume, quick hands, heavyweight, lands a lot of punches, high output. That's that's his path to victory on the scorecards. Now in terms of takedown offense, Chris Dalkis is averaging 0 takedowns per fight. Derek Lewis, a half a takedown per 15 minutes, so as you can see, Typical heavyweights, the fights, the fights want the fighters in the heavyweight division typically want to keep that fight on the feet. Takedown defense, one hundred percent for Chris Dalkus, fifty five percent for Derek Lewis. Again, I don't think that's going to be much of a factor. It's some notes on the fighters here for Chris Dalkus. He's from Northeast Philadelphia. He's a Philadelphia police officer. His dad was a Philadelphia police officer. He is the brother of Kyle Dalkus, who is also in the UFC. He started training mixed martial arts after high school as a way just to find get to get his competitive edge because he was an athlete in high school looking for something to do. He's gaining weight. Um, here we are now. He's a mixed martial artist in the UFC, right? He's married with a child. He had a 3-0 amateur record. He made his pro debut in 2013. He did fight in the Northeast in the CFFC or Cage Fury fight promotion, which is a very good promotion. Notably, both of these fighters fought Shamil Abdurkimov. Both of them finished that fighter. So not really much you could take from that standpoint that they both finished Shamil, but they both fought that same fighter. So the only fighter they both uh, crossed paths with. Pros here on uh, Chris Dalkis. Great footwork, quick hands, especially for a heavyweight. You can see the output there. Nine strikes per minute. Very active, very good cardio. Um, he used to be an overweight guy. You know, he worked hard to slim down his frame. Um, he's in phenomenal shape. Seems to do the extra things you need to do to have good cardio. You notice that in the second, third rounds of his fights. Pretty fresh fighter. High output again. He's 4-0 in the UFC. Four straight wins and four straight finishes in the UFC. So nice, impressive start for him to his UFC career. And he's on a five-fight winning streak. Obviously, very good finish rate. He's got 11 finishes in his 12 wins. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Um, so now, my concerns with Chris Dalkis, there's only two concerns. One, hasn't really been tested yet, right? Second thing is the level of competition that he has faced is significantly lower than what Derek Lewis has faced. So, again, hasn't really been tested, hasn't fought the competition of his opponent, but I can't really criticize much else that, for, for Chris Dalkis. Yeah, his wrestling game can get better, but most heavyweights are like that. But his, his fighting game on the feet, his technique on the feet, his punching, his ability to move, slip, um, you know, it's very impressive for heavyweight. Very, very good conditioning, very good quickness. So now, as for Derek Lewis, 22 total UFC fights. So the guy is a veteran. He made his pro debut in 2014 on Fox for UFC. His most notable opponents, 
He's fought guys like Daniel Cormier, Junior Dos Santos, Sergio Gan, Curtis, Bla- Curtis Blades, Francis Ngannou, Alexander Volkov. And he's got wins over Ngannou and Volkov and Mar- Marcin Tiburo. So those are names you're just not going to find on Chris Dalkas' resume yet. Because he's a younger fighter, obviously, making his way up the division here. Um, and younger only by a few years. But younger meaning that he hasn't been in mixed martial arts as long as Derek Lewis. So... You know, fighter history-wise, Derek Lewis definitely has experience. Now, some positives on Derek Lewis. Pretty good finish rate. He's got three finishes in his last five wins. Um, obviously, a veteran of UFC, 22 total UFC fights. Quality losses. You know, the loss against Cyril Gane recently, third-round loss, TKO. I mean, the guy's a champ, right? Um, Dos Santos, Daniel Cormier, Mark Hunt. Quality losses against good-level opponents. Now, Derek Lewis, he does slow down as the fight goes on, as most heavyweights do. And he'll probably slow down a little bit more than Chris Dalkus, but... When he starts moving those hands for a big guy, this guy has quick hands. And, of course, like a lot of heavyweights, has the opportunity. I mean, if he touches touches somebody with the wrong connection, he can knock somebody out and the fight. Okay, he does have that power. A lot of times, unfortunately, Derek Lewis, he'll lose round one and two. Round three, he pulls off a nice you know, uppercut, you know, uppercut or, or hook of some kind, gets a knockout, gets the win. He can't keep depending upon that. Here you got a guy in Chris Dalkus who's going to be pretty busy. Maybe winning round one and round two by a landslide because he's got the numbers up. If he's careful in round three, stays away from that that thunder shot, he could win the fight just on the scorecards. And so again, with Derek Lewis, tends to come out slower. He's more prodding, looking for that heavy heavy hand, you know, that one big punch. Whereas Chris Douglas can be working behind his jab, being a little more busier. So, um, but I do like the quick hands of Derek Lewis when he is moving those hands and when he does strike. Dude's got hands. Um, now, for Derek Lewis, my concerns for him, he is getting older, right? 37 years old, tends to slow down as the fight goes on. Not the greatest wrestler, okay wrestler, but as the fight goes on, whatever wrestling ability he has and his power, they really start to diminish, okay? So another thing about Derek Lewis, couldn't quite get over the hump, right, in his career. Been around for a while, has had those opportunities to like break through and become a top contender or break through and get a belt. And can't seem to do it, you know. So when he goes up against these top level guys like Daniel Cormier, like like when he goes up against uh, recently against um, Cyril Gan, he's coming up short in those fights. You know what I mean? And again, it's part of it is the way he fights, where he's depending upon the one punch to win the fight, ends up getting himself behind the behind the eight ball with the scorecards, and so that ends up being you know a fatal flaw for his. So looking side by side and some comparisons of these two guys, experience wise, definitely give the edge to Lewis. Fighter IQ, both a very cerebral fighter, smart fighters. Cardio-wise, I give an edge to Chris Dalkis. Finishing ability, I'm going to give a small, small edge to the younger fighter here only because he's finishing at a higher rate right now and even in the UFC. But man, Derek Lewis, do not underestimate his punching power. Boxing-wise, Chris Dalkis is busier, cleaner, down the pipe. Who has the more power behind their punch? I'd say Derek Lewis delivers a harder shot. Grappling-wise, these guys are equal. So here's what's going to happen here. If you're betting on Chris Dalkus, you're saying higher volume over the course of two to three rounds, good footwork, good movement. He's going to look like he's pushing the pace. He's going to look busier. The judges will reward him for that, right? If you're on Derek Lewis, you're more or less, you know, you're playing craps here. You're just saying it's that one punch. At some point, he's going to crack Chris Dalkus with one punch that'll lead to the finish. When breaking this fight down, I found myself initially on Dalkus easily. I was like, oh, I like this Dalkus guy. Minus 140, you know, Philadelphia guy, local, not too far from me. How can I go against the, the local kid, right? But then you start thinking about it's three rounds, it's 15 minutes, and Derek Lewis, all it takes is one punch, and that's a little scary. So I don't have a good feel for this fight. I am p- picking Chris Dalkus to win. I'm not going to bet it straight up. I have to look carefully here for the prop that I like. The prop that you want to go looking for in a heavyweight fight is like, oh, 
Under, under one and a half. Doesn't go the distance. But here's the thing with these guys. They have a tendency to get out of round one. They're both pretty durable. They're fairly smart. They're patient at times. With Chris Dalkis, he's landing a lot of punches, but they're not high, like, high impact punches. He's just touching, touching, feeling out his opponent, landing. Not that he can't land with for power for power. It's just that early on in round one, even if he lands a lot of punches in round one, they're not going to be very violent punches. They're not going to be significant punches. So I see it going into round two. And then it's like, well, do the, does the fatigue become a factor? Does Derek Lewis hang on? Does anyone get hurt? Is there some hugging going on? So you want to point towards the under. You want to see the fight does not go the distance because it's a heavyweight bout. But I'd caution you on that. Look a little deeper in this. I'm going to look deeper into this fight to find the best prop bet for our prop show. But as a straight-up bet here, I like Chris Dalkis to win the fight. Actually, I should rephrase that. As a straight-up pick here, I like Chris Dalkis to win the fight. I'm not going to bet it straight up. I just don't have a good feel in this fight. And usually for the main event, I do have a good feel for this one. I do not. So good luck with this one, guys. Um, this is going to be a tough one here, but it'll be an exciting way to finish the, the 2021 year. So good luck on this fight. And that wraps up our breakdown here for UFC Vegas 45. I'm going to give you a really quick summary here of our favorite picks to win. I'm not going to get too much into the prop bets again. We're going to talk about those on our prop show. But here we are, our picks to win here for UFC Vegas 245. Chris Dalkis in the main event. Steven Thompson in the co-main event. Amanda Lemos. Ricky Simone, Matus Gamrot, Cub Swanson, Dustin Stolfis, Ryoni Barcelos, Justin Taffa, Melissa Gatto, Charles Jourdain, Raquel Rocky Pennington, Dante Mays, and Jordan Levitt. Our most confident picks to win on this card, starting with the main card. Really like Amanda Lemos a lot. Probably my most confident pick, and I'll be putting a few units on her. I like Ricky Simone and Gamrot on the main card. The three confident picks on the main card. For the prelim card, I like Justin Taffa a lot, and I like Raquel Pennington a lot. Um, I know people are on Macy Chasson. I just think the veteran Raquel Pennington is going to come through. And then third on the, on, the, on the prelim card, probably Charles Jourdain. All right, so that wraps things up. I hope you were listening and looking out for the snowflakes, right? Remember what the prizes were. The first three people who go to the comment section and comment accurately on the breakdowns that were part of this prediction that had the snowflakes in them. Only the fight predictions or the fight breakdowns that had the snowflakes falling from the screen. You'll see them accurately. Go to the comment section. List those fights that had the, had the snowflakes in them. The first three, people, the first three people who do that will give you a $25 gift card. And the fourth person who does it, heck, will give you a gift card too for $25. It's going to be some spending money for the holidays. All right. So thanks again for welcoming or thanks again for coming by and joining us here for our last episode of the year. We appreciate all of your time and consideration to come through and check out our content please like and subscribe if you haven't done already best of luck with this card we have one more episode coming out this week before this uh fight which is going to be our prop show come on back and check that out thanks for joining us again guys have a wonderful night